optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start to shake. Can I answer your personal question? Now we're just sitting in a perfect time. I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hello, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. I am looking out over a highway from a hotel next to JFK because I forgot my passport in California and missed my flight. In any case, on this show, it is always my job to try to deconstruct world-class performers and identify the routines, the habits, the decisions that help them to become who they are. And in this episode, we have a really fun guest, Will McCaskill. Will McCaskill is an associate professor in philosophy at Lincoln College, which is at Oxford. He is 28 years old, which makes him likely the youngest associate, in other words, tenured professor of philosophy in the world. He is co-founder of the Effective Altruism Movement, which I'm a huge supporter of, and author of Doing Good Better. He has pledged to donate everything he earns over 36K, roughly, per year to whatever charities he believes will be most effective. He has co-founded two well-known nonprofits, 80,000 Hours and Giving What We Can, and we'll get into both of those. But more important, we will talk about 
the lessons he's learned, how to evaluate doing good, how to hack doing good as you would in business. And he has been exposed to business. He's one of the few nonprofit founders who have gone through Y Combinator, which is effectively the Harvard Navy SEAL equivalent for startup incubators based in Silicon Valley. Uh, and uh, his stories are just fascinating. We talk about many different things. Uh, we cover a lot of ground, everything from artificial intelligence to why following your passion in a career is often a mistake, how on earth he became a, t- a tenured professor at his young age, thought experiments like Pascal's wager versus Pascal's mugging. And even if you have no interest in nonprofits, charities, this will, th- will help teach you how to think more effectively, uh, how to evaluate things more effectively. We'll also talk about some specifics, why donating to disaster relief or uh, purchasing things through ethical consumerism are generally not a great way to do good. But we talk about his story, his decisions, and there is a lot to be learned. So say hello to him on the interwebs. Will is at Will McCaskill at W-I-L-L-M-A-C-A-S-K-I-L-L on Twitter. And please enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. Will, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate you making the time. And where do we find you on the planet Earth at this moment? I'm in Oxford in the United Kingdom at the moment. And uh, now you are an associate professor in philosophy at Lincoln College. Is that right? Yeah, Lincoln College, Oxford University. And is Lincoln College... It's not a residential college. So, for instance, at Princeton, they have different residential colleges. What is the significance of the colleges within Oxford? Yeah, it's a really big thing, actually. So almost all your teaching goes on in college. You live there. You eat there. Most of your friends are there while you're a student at the university. And uh, actually, all the colleges predate the university. So that's really the core of your life at Oxford. Um, And then you get examined and go to lectures at the university itself. And when you receive a degree, is it from a particular college? Do you have to attribute it to the the college, or is it simply Oxford? No, the degree is just from the university. Got it. So let's let's then begin. You do quite a few things. When someone asks you, what do you do? How do you answer that question? That's right. So depending on whether I want to be low-key or not, uh, I'll tell them I'm associate professor of philosophy at Oxford University, Um, But I'm also one of the co-founders of the Effective Altruism Movement, where that's a community of people who are dedicated to using their time and money uh, as effectively as possible to make the world a better place. Um, And to that end, I co-founded a couple of nonprofits, uh, Giving What We Can, which encourages people to give at least 10% of their income to the most effective charities, and 80,000 Hours, named after the number of hours you typically work in your life, which is about giving advice to people to ensure that if they want to pursue a career with a big impact, they can do as much good as they can. And what is the, how do you answer the question, what makes your brand of altruism effective? And maybe we can back into that where there was a tweet I saw at one point from Bill mm-hmm. Gates and it was a data nerd after my own heart. <laughs> and he linked to an article about you. I think it was a profile in the Atlantic. That's exactly uh, right. Uh, so if you're talking to a skeptic and they say, okay, well, what makes it effective? Right. Yeah. You- so the key is that we take a kind of scientific approach to doing good. So that's using high quality evidence, really good data, uh, thinking about the outcomes that your actions do rather than just what's a really sexy intervention or what makes you feel good, but actually what's helping people the most. And you know, drawing on 
years of research now, as well as using careful, reflective, self-critical reasoning in order to work out what those things that aren't just making a difference, but are making the most difference. And uh, what are some common mistakes? And just so people listening understand this, this isn't a disguised sell for nonprofit donations on my part. This is a conversation that I've wanted to have with you because we have a mutual friend in Ryan Holiday and who is Mm -hmm. himself a philosopher of sorts, a huge fan of Stoic philosophy, as am I. Mm -hmm. And um, he's a fan of yours. And I I was very interested to connect. So just so those people who are wondering if this is a a dressed-up sales pitch, it is not. Uh, (laughs) What are common mistakes that people make when giving? And I've had many of my own struggles with providing time and money to various causes and nonprofits that maybe we'll dig into some of them specifically, mm-hmm. but what are, what are common mistakes or, uh, misallocation of resources that you see, uh, very yeah. commonly? So, yeah, I think the biggest mistake of all is just not really thinking or doing any research about where you're donating. So, I mean, imagine if someone came up to you in the street and, uh, told you about this company that they'd set up or that they were representing and that you should really invest in this company and they tell you about how great the company is and then ask you right there on the street, well, are you going to make an investment? Um, no, <laughs> so, so, sounds like Silicon we, Valley right now. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe it's a little bit different in the day. Um, certainly here in Oxford, people would be... Uh, generally you know, not a good idea. Yeah. Generally not a good idea. Um, but yet we're happy to do that when it comes to charities. We're happy to um, spend our money to try and help others but without ever actually doing um, the research to work out, you know, what's going to actually have the biggest impact. And there are evaluators now like GiveWell.org that are doing this research for us so that we can actually like follow their recommendations because um, it does take quite a bit of time. How does GiveWell.org compare to, say, Charity Navigator or something like that? Yeah, there are really big differences. So Charity Navigator focuses just on kind of the financials and just on the aspects of the charity itself, where one core part of it is how much does the charity spend on overheads? Um, What's the percentage spent on administration? But that's not a great metric because uh, imagine you've got some really lousy program. Um, You're giving away donuts to hungry police officers or something, something that's not going to do very much good. And instead, but you've got this amazingly low overhead. You're spending almost nothing on administration. Well, you're still going to be a lousy charity. You can't make a lousy charity good by having a very low overhead. Right. Got it. Um, so yeah. they're looking at the sort of uh, the operational efficiencies, but whether something is efficient or not, it can still be very ineffective. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you've got to look at what program the charity is implementing as well. And there, there's absolutely huge differences. So three quarters of social programs, when put to the test um, using trials, are found to have no effect at all. They just don't actually improve people's lives. Some are even actively harmful. But then among the ones that are good, that do make a difference, there's a, still a vast discrepancy. The best ones are hundreds of times as good as merely ones that just do some amount of good. And I, it, it seems like you are a skeptic of, sort of disaster relief. Is that a fair statement? Or how would, uh, you, how would you unpack that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think funding disaster relief, you know, it should happen for sure, um, when there's a massive crisis like the Haitian earthquake, um, money should be going to it. Um, and a lot of money, in fact. But then the question is, what should you as an individual donor do? And natural disasters, because they get so much press coverage and so much media attention, 
they're massively overfunded compared to what I'd call ongoing natural disasters like the 400,000 people who die of malaria every year, but that gets far less media coverage. Um, and in fact, even in the case of the Japanese earthquake, the Japanese Red Cross issued a statement saying, we do not want any money, we do not need money, we're the fourth richest country in the world. Um, we have the resources to deal with this problem. But yet they still got $5 billion in donations, which was about the same as got allocated to Haiti, which is one of the poorest countries in the world. Understood. And let's... let's take a step back for a minute because I know we could we could really dig into mm-hmm. the sort of tactics and uh, science and numbers behind what you do but you are currently 28 is that right that's right and you are a tenured professor of philosophy yep. where does that <laughs> put you on the spectrum of tenured professors of philosophy worldwide age uh, wise Age-wise, um, it's hard to verify, but I suspect I might be the youngest in the world. And uh, to what do you attribute that? Why you? Yeah. It, it's a competitive, it's a very competitive field, um, as, as I understand it. The, the, you know, the, the philosophy, I want to ask a question about this, but you mm-hmm. know, philosophy postgrads <laughs> having the highest GRE scores out of any subject. Uh, so so what are the what are the... What are the factors that contributed to you becoming tenured at such a young age? Yeah, so I definitely think it's not because I'm the smartest person. I'm very confident I'm not. Um, I know lots of people who are like have exceptionally high IQs um, around these places. And also not, I think, because I put in the most number of hours because I do so much other stuff as well. But I think the two things are just, one is, yeah, one is like actually kind of understanding kind of, uh, under, you know, really thinking about what your goals are and understanding how is it best to achieve those goals, which seems like, you know, that's pretty common sense. You'd think like everyone would do that, but actually most people don't. Most people spend, for example, years and years kind of slogging away just on their dissertation, their PhD, even though that's normally read by about four people in the world, rather than focusing, say, on publishing really good articles, which are read by much more people and much import- more important in terms of doing well in a career. And then the second aspect is just absolutely a ruthless application of the 80-20 rule, um, uh, which obviously you talk about in your book. But just the idea that of the stuff that you do, most people do, almost all the value comes from a very small number of activities. And again, I think a lot of people in academia get, use a lot of the time used up with busy work. So they attend conferences, they go to like, seminars, they do a lot of reading that doesn't ultimately contribute to you know, what they're really trying to do, which is come up with new ideas, new arguments, um, and really put that forward. And so I think I've been just a lot more proactive and kind of goal-oriented in terms of the approach I take to my work. So, so let's, let's get into detail with that, because I know people love the details. And mm-hmm. not surprisingly, a lot of people listening love 80-20. The 80-20 principle are all applications of that. So if we rewind to your undergraduate, were you mm-hmm. studying philosophy undergrad? Yeah, that's right. I was at Cambridge University as an undergrad. And what did the trajectory look like? What were the inflection points or key moments between that point and getting tenured? Yeah, so um, I think I was a lot less effective as an undergrad. I was still kind of trying to discover what, um, you know, how to do things effectively. And I made some big mistakes. I remember 
trying to train myself to only sleep four hours a night. And that was a disaster. That was the worst year of my life. <laughs> um, then I realized, like, no, actually, like, sleeping well and exercising well is really important in terms of having good performance. Um, one thing I realized as an undergrad was just that um, you can just make so much progress just by finding someone smarter than you and learning from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's exactly what I did. Um, someone who's now a close friend of mine just knew absolutely everything. And so I'd who, spend hours just this? talking to him. Uh, so he's Andreas Morgensen. He also got a professorship at Oxford. Uh-huh. Um, in the philosophy department. In the philosophy department, that's right. So we've ended up having a very similar career trajectory. Um, and I've been a zombie and eaten his brains at every stage of the way. <laughs> um, uh, but then in terms of the big, um, the big inflection points, I think, really came, I mean, both through, you know, it was only when I moved to Oxford to do my postgrad work that I started to get a lot more serious about this. Also realizing, you know, getting funding to do philosophy postgrad is pretty hard. Um, but then realizing that there are a lot of scholarships out there that most people have never heard of and actually don't therefore get that many applicants. So if you apply for them, you can actually have a pretty good chance and then manage to get funding for my PhD and extend it by uh, a little bit more than other people do uh, through a combination of, I think, eight different scholarships in the end. Um, and so doing that, and then the big thing was just um, from the outset of starting a PhD thinking, okay, well, philosophy is incredibly competitive. If I do want to do this as a career, then um, I've really got to know what's actually expected of you. Like, what, on what basis are you going to get um, hired as a professor? And the answer is weirdly disconnected from what you typically do as a grad student. Um, at least in philosophy, people basically judge you on the quality of your best five or 10,000 words of work whereas your dissertation is kind of 80,000 words or something. And so if you want to really do well, then it's just about making that highest quality stuff as good as possible and then trying to get it published in the very best journals. So it's really about optimizing for your kind of peak output rather than just being this kind of big journalist. Got it. What was your dissertation about? And what, uh, so it, and what, and what was your best five to 10,000 words about? Oh, um, so dissertation was about Uh, ethical uncertainty. So if you're unsure about um, uh, what you ought to do, so maybe you think, okay, well, I think it's okay to eat meat, but I'm unsure about that. Uh, You know, there are these vegetarians around and they have these arguments and so on. And you're like, well, I don't quite know what to do. How should you act in light of that? How should you take uncertainty into account? And this was quite a strategic choice of topic as well, because almost... It's like a very important topic, but almost nothing has been written about it. So I could read everything that had been written on it in about two weeks, whereas many people choose to pursue PhDs on something that's already had a huge amount of work done. Um, and so that was, the, uh, that was what the PhD was on. And in particular, I argued that even if you're unsure about your values, you should treat that uncertainty in the same way as if you're unsure about matters of fact or what's going to happen. So in the same way as if you wouldn't speed around a blind corner if there was some risk of a child playing in the street, um, even if you thought there was probably no one there, you still wouldn't want to risk it. In the same way, if you think, well, maybe something is wrong, um, I think it probably isn't, but there's a risk, and if it was, it would be very wrong, I think you should take that same, uh, same course of action. 
you should again kind of play safe, as it were. Sort of the Pascal, um, Pascal's wager for life. Kind of. <laughs> it's a little bit, yeah. It doesn't involve infinite amounts of value, though that's interesting too. But a little bit like Pascal's wager for life. Mm-hmm. And then, what about your 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 peak or your your best five to ten thousand words? Was it the same subject or something completely different? Yeah, so it was the same subject as well. Um, and this is all just quite distinct from my effective altruism stuff. But it was the same subject and. Uh, in particular, I saw there was this analogy between that sort of decision and a bunch of work that had been done in economics. Uh, so again, this is something where you can make a lot of progress um, by doing research is just by combining two different fields, because the number of combinations of fields is as far, far greater than um, the number of the fields themselves. And so I argued that this problem was kind of like um, the problem of voting. So in just the same way as there's this problem of like, if you've got all these people with different preferences, how do you kind of aggregate that into one social preference or one dis- will of the people as it were? And there's just a ton of work done on that in economics. That's really interesting and often quite technical. And I said that was kind of the same as um, the decision under ethical uncertainty. It's like, you've got all these different ethical vo- uh, viewpoints and they're like different voters. And if you we want to be able to make a decision between them, um, in light of that kind of uncertainty, you can treat them as like voters, and you can use that those same kind of all the same technical apparatus that had been developed in economics and apply it to that case of ethical uncertainty. Which uh, so you mentioned Andreas uh, mm-hmm. Morganson. What other philosophers are your uh, idols? Is a strong word, but role models, mm-hmm. people you really look up to. If you had to alive or dead, if you had to put sort of your top your top five or yeah. fewer philosophers on a list, who would they be? Yeah, so there are two that really stand out. Um, the first one on the, he's more of a kind of academic, is Derek Parfit. How do you say, uh, Derek Parfit? Parfit, yeah, P-A-R-F-I-T. And he spent his entire life at All Souls College in Oxford, uh, which is elite even within Oxford. What was the name of the at college? All Souls College. All Souls? All Souls, yeah. That's intense. Yeah, um, the way you get into All Souls College, and Andreas achieved this as well, is you have to sit 15 hours of exams and you have to answer questions that can be on any topic, like, is China overrated? Why democracy? How many people should there be? Uh, and then the final <laughs> three-hour exam is just on a single word. Uh, <laughs> Sounds horrible. Sounds very uniquely it, philosophical, too, I mean, in terms of academia. <laughs> it, it's, it's crazy. So it's known as the hardest exam in the world. But it gives you seven years of funding, and you can do whatever you want in those seven What's years. What's the name of the exam? It's called the All Souls um, Prize Fellowship, I think. Ah, okay. So, the, uh, so Derek is one. He is one, and he's, you know, he's now 70. Um, and he wrote a book called Reasons and Persons, uh, which I think is one of the most important books written in the 20th century. Could you say that one uh, more time? Reasons and Persons. Reasons and Persons. Yeah. And it argues... Oh, a whole number of things, but two of the big things are, uh, one is the idea that there isn't really a continuing self over time. Um, so the difference, but there's nothing kind of fundamental, um, fundamentally distinct between different between Will McCaskill age 28 and Will McCaskill age 70 versus Will McCaskill age 28 and uh, Tim Ferriss right now. There's only a kind of matter of degree between those things. Uh, and that has a whole number of implications. And actually, um, interestingly, there's been 
uh, is actually quite similar to Big Schlein in Buddhist thought. And apparently his book has been used as a, as a text in certain um, Buddhist temples. They chant to it. Um, he, didn't, uh, <laughs> he didn't realize this for like 30 years or something. <laughs> and then um, he and then he showed up, and there was some effigy to Derek Parfit sitting yeah, on a yeah. throne in a cave in Tibet. That's uh, that's yeah, very exciting. And well, I mean, it, it does resonate certainly with the uh, certain discussions of self, right? Whether it's a contemporary like uh, Sam Harris, who's a PhD in neuroscience, but also a very mm-hmm. experienced meditator who wrote "Waking Up," mm-hmm. or texts that are thousands of years old. I mean the. The, the concept of a static self is something that's challenged a lot in Buddhist thought, among others. Uh, so you have, so you have Derek. Uh, who's who's your number two? Number two then has to be Peter Singer, and I was going to ask you about him. Yeah, yeah, he's a big influence, um, both in terms of my thought and in terms of how I'm, you know, approaching my life, the decisions I'm making, um, in terms of my own career. Uh, and he, you know, has two really big important arguments. One is for um, the moral importance of non-human animals um, and you know, treating them much better than we treat them um, uh, as we do at the moment. And then also the importance of uh, fighting global poverty, especially for we and us in rich countries, using, you know, he really argued it should be most of uh, your income, um, donating that away to charities that will you know, help improve lives or save lives um, among the poorest people in the world, where he argues that, you know, if you were walking past a shallow pond and a child was drowning in that pond, uh, and you could run in and save the child and it would ruin your expensive suit that you were wearing and it cost you a couple of thousand dollars as a result, you'd obviously go and do that. You'd be, um, in technical terms, an asshole if you didn't. <laughs> um, uh, he doesn't say that. That's my, that's my interpretation of the argument. Um, but if so, then what's the difference between that and the life that you can save in Malawi right now by distributing um, insecticide-treated bed nets to save the child from malaria? And he argues there isn't a difference. And he was immensely influential, so sold millions of books and um, you know, caused a large number of people to really change their lives, um, including myself. Now... Do you uh, so I'm I am a Peter Singer fan and I think that most people who are not most people who protest <laughs> against or picket against Peter Singer haven't read his work um mm-hmm. and, and certainly he has controversial stances but I remember when he came to Princeton to teach and there were people picketing and rolling mm-hmm. out their disabled children and mm-hmm. uh so on because they they were I think sort of adopting bastardized versions of what he had said from media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so as much as I like Peter, I would, I would propose, well, you know, this isn't about me. Let me ask you, do you think mm-hmm. it's really the same in so much it's walking, you know, walking in with a suit and rescuing a drowning child versus saving a potentially sort of faceless child across the world of which there are, potentially millions, right? And the reason, mm-hmm. the, reason, the reason I bring it up is not to say that people shouldn't do it, but uh, I had a conversation with, uh, well, actually, I suppose it was a Q&A of sorts with Sam Harris about the, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's called the trolley scenario, and I'm not sure oh, yeah, if, yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about, right? Whereas, yeah, so, so, so those people who are not familiar with this, <clears throat> the, the hypothetical thought exercise, which is going to have a lot of real implications when we're using 
uh, autonomous vehicles and programming AI and so on. So, you know, f- philosophy is suddenly a mm-hmm. lot, lot more relevant or some of these thought mm-hmm. exercises more relevant than they, they maybe would have been imagined to become the, you have, and please correct me if I'm wrong. And I, I think I'm just paraphrasing this, but if you had a railroad track and you could flip a switch for it to go down one track, that was split to the left and another that was split to the right. There's one kind of like fat man on the left. And then there are four people on the right, uh, which, and you have to throw the switch. Do you throw the switch to the one person or the four? And people uh, say, of course, that they would they would switch it to the one. But then the mm-hmm. the second scenario I think of, and there may be more, is if you had to push the fat man off of a bridge so he landed in uh, you know on the track and mm-hmm. it was an obstacle that then prevented four people from dying. Would you do it? And all of a sudden the percentages change very dramatically, right? And even though the the utilitarian philosophical outcome uh, is on paper the same, right? So, so, so mm-hmm. and, and this is, um, I know I'm, I'm kind of brain vomiting at you, but this, this is something I've really grappled with. So, so Peter Singer had a cover story, I believe it was the New York Times Magazine, mm-hmm. Sunday edition, huge uh, piece on... Um, Distrib- you know, it's basically redistributing wealth for mm-hmm. greater good. Yep, yep. And yet I couldn't necessarily point to a huge change in donation behavior after that article. So why don't more people donate? Right. Because I, I yep. if I have, if I looked at my 10 friends, uh, a, a, a given 10 friends who I would consider good human beings who have money, they would save the drowning child, but they're not going to send, um, if yeah, for yeah. the same reason that I, I think that they're, they're afraid of opening the floodgates. If they donate to one child, does it not then follow? They should donate all of the money that they have to save not one child, but as many as they can afford to save. Um, and then they get themselves, they get themselves into a, very hairy um, position where they feel like they can't enjoy the fruit of their labor because of the mm-hmm. guilt that they feel. Does that make sense? So, yeah. So, how do you address that? I mean, this is something yeah. that I've grappled with, and I know friends of mine. I mean, I've I have friends who've had to like basically check out and 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 uh, and basically do therapy who've been in nonprofits for a long time because they get to oh, a yeah, point yeah. where they'll like have dinner with a friend and they're like, for the amount you spent on that bottle of wine, like you could have saved a life in Malawi. And the mm-hmm. friend's like, that's a real dickish thing to say. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I know they, a lot of people who've worked in nonprofits and gotten very disillusioned, very burnt out. Yeah. So how, um, do you, how do you, how do you think of addressing that? Yeah. And so actually it is kind of indicative because Peter Singer was making these arguments since the early seventies really. And, there wasn't that much uptake of them until Toby and I, so Toby Ord, another academic at Oxford, um, and I set up Giving What We Can. Um, that was in 2009. And we were saying, okay, give 10%. And we, yeah, I think there were a number of changes. So like, one is just that, you know, we emphasize this concrete number, 10%. And some people go further than that. Some people give 50%. I may need to give away most of what I earn over the course of my life. Um, so that was one thing. Second was presenting it as just this amazing opportunity rather than this moral obligation. So yes, that's way Peter. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, yeah, the way Peter presents this is just 
yeah, you're this asshole if you don't do this. And then people are like, well, fuck you. Um, <laughs> and that's just kind of, I mean, it's a kind of natural human reaction. Whereas actually, most people really want to do good with their lives. Um, you know, if you could be that person rescuing that drowning child, or if you could knock down the door to a burning building and save someone from inside, you'd feel like a hero. You'd feel great about yourself. And actually, that's the situation we're in. We're in this situation where you can do huge amount of good that little cost to yourself, maybe even actually given the psychological evidence, um, benefiting yourself because giving has a whole host of um, benefits to the giver as well as to the receiver. So it's actually this amazing opportunity we have. And then secondly, I think the reason we don't give is just because a lot of psychological biases. So I remember when I was thinking about this, I just thought, well, I just don't want to be a sucker. You know, everyone else is, you know, getting ahead. Um, they're being really ambitious. I was ambitious myself. Um, I don't want to be holding myself back by spending all this time on nonprofit stuff and giving my money away and, you know, going behind, falling behind my peers. Whereas we've built up this community, the effective altruism community, where everyone's help kind of self-reinforcing. You get really praised for doing more good or doing it more effectively. And it's this really warm, welcoming, it's kind of new peer group, a new part of your identity. Uh, and I think that can really help overcome uh, a lot of the reservations that people have. And then I think the final thing is just in terms of the impact people have. So obviously there's a huge debate about how effective aid is. And I think it's reasonable for someone who've, who's you know, only vaguely heard about this stuff to think, oh, yeah, well, if you just donate, doesn't all the money get wasted? Um, because it's true that in very many cases, the money is squandered, the money is wasted, there's no impact. Um, but then by us actually doing the research and saying, no, look, if you do this, if you pay, give money to Against Malaria Foundation, distribute long-lasting insecticide-feeded bed nets, the $3,500, statistically speaking, you will save a life. A huge number of trials have been conducted on this to show the efficacy of bed nets. Um, we can answer all your questions. Then it's like, okay, this isn't just this kind of Pascal's mugging situation where <laughs> maybe I'll save a life, but I don't really know what's going on. Actually, I know exactly what my money is going to go and do. And, you know, it's still uh, the child you save, you still never know, but they become a little bit less faceless. It's a little bit more concrete what you're actually going to achieve. Did you say Pascal's mugging? Um, I might have said Pascal's mugging, but uh, <laughs> do you know about that thought experiment? Uh, no, I don't. I'd love to hear that, though, because that should be the title of your next book, I think. Okay. Oh, my God. I would love to write about Pascal's mugging. Um, that scenario is where uh, it's the same as Pascal's wager, except um, without uh, infinite amounts of uh, value at stake. It's not about heaven right. or hell. And we should probably – could you just briefly explain Pascal's wager? So for people who are, are not familiar or would like to get reacquainted, we, we have that as a baseline before we get to Pascal's mugging. I love that we've got onto this. Um, so Pascal's wager is the idea that you should go to church because um, maybe you think it's incredibly unlikely that God exists. Let's say it's a, you know, you think it's just almost no chance, one in a billion chance or something. But the payoff's just so great because it's an infinite amount of happiness. If you take a one in a billion chance multiplied by positive infinity of happiness, well, um, that's, you know, still, a, you know, plus infinity, um, in expectation amount of happiness that you're going to get. Whereas the costs of going to church, just not that great. And so, you know, if you're really kind of even just out for yourself, just looking to um, maximize your own happiness, then you should try and believe in God and you should try and go to church. Um, 
just because the potential payoff is so great. So that's kind of his idea. That's Pascal's idea from 17th century. Pascal's mugging is a slightly more updated version where uh, uh, Blaise Pascal is coming out of a pub and this kind of eerie figure approaches him and says, give me all the money in your wallet. And Pascal's like, no. And the mugger says, well, okay, I know you're Blaise Pascal. I know that you think that the way to make decisions is to look at the probabilities of outcomes and uh, their values and take that all together. And if you give me the money in your wallet, then I will come back tomorrow and give you any finite amount of um, you know, happiness or money or anything you could possibly want. And Pascal will like, no. And it's like, yeah, but like, look into my eyes. I'm like this kind of like slightly creepy figure. You don't know that I'm this, not this you know, alien or someone with superhuman powers. Like, you can't be absolutely certain of that. So you should still, you know, by your own logic, you should still give me this money. And uh, it kind of the thought experiment goes to show that um, Pascal, you know, would have to say, even in cases that aren't involving kind of infinities or heaven and hell, you should still do actions that seem pretty crazy to us, like um, giving this mugger money on this tiny, right. tiny if, there, if there's a possibility of asymmetrical reward, then you should take the bet. Yeah, that's meant right. to be, yeah, that's meant to be the argument, but it seems ridiculous. So something's gone wrong. And right. Well, I mean, the, yeah, you, well, using that, right. Every, yeah, everyone should invest in speculative startups, right? <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Uh, Pascal's mugging. I love it. You know, <laughs> I would, I would, uh, I would love for like a, a drunk hipster to try to, mug someone with that, with that approach in the mission. I'd be curious to see how that turns out. Uh, well, certain <laughs> in the Bay, it might work. Yeah, it might, it might. <laughs> depends on, depends on <laughs> who you catch, I guess, coming out of their, their juice bar or whatever. But, yeah, exactly. uh, so the, um, I, I got us off track just a little bit, but in, ter- in terms <laughs> of, like- in terms of why people don't give more, right. I think that there, mm. we could look at, the negative examples, right? So the guilting approach doesn't work very well because like you said, it just provokes a go fuck yourself response. I think mm-hmm. rightly so, quite frankly. I mean, I think it's a very kind of naive and insulting way to kind of go about it, which doesn't mm-hmm. have, for someone who's thought about things so rationally, it's surprising to me that Singer takes that approach because it flies in the face of like any type of negotiation research or behavioral mm-hmm. modification research. <laughs> so that's kind of funny. Uh, yeah. But uh, if I look at, for instance, the causes that I've been involved with on some level, um, and I have not looked at them on givewell.org, but I've tried to do the amount of due diligence that I could with the bandwidth that I have, uh, whether it's say donors choose that does a lot of work with education, uh, or charity water, for instance, they both do a very good job of concretizing the abstract. Mm-hmm. So they send you photographs, updates, letters, etc., to, make you feel like you are rescuing that drowning child in your own suit. Um, what, uh, and just to come back for a second, the mosquito nets that you mentioned, is mm-hmm. that the type of conclusion someone could come to on givewell.org or are there other sites that they should check out? And we usually do this at the end of the show, but since we're on it, like what, what, what other resources can people use given their busy lives? The people who have the most resources to, allocate to something like this are usually also the busiest, right? I think that's another challenge. Yeah. So, yeah. so what's, what's the, 
what's the, the most elegant way, time efficient way to figure these things out for oneself? Yeah. So if you're, yeah, if you're busy, by far the best thing is just givewell.org, um, where they just have these four top recommended charities. So they just try and find out what are the charities that are doing the most good that we know of. And those charities are Against Malaria Foundation, which distributes bed nets, um, saving life about $3,500. Uh, te- so the best charities often have the worst names. And so a couple of Deworm the World initiative and the Schistosomiasis Control Initiative, um, which when I first researched it five years ago, I could not pronounce. Um, and then which, and they deworm school children. So people don't really know about this, but over a billion people worldwide suffer from these parasitic worm infections in their guts. And they don't kill as many people as HIV, AIDS, uh, tuberculosis, malaria, and so on. But they do just make huge numbers of people, especially kids, sick. And therefore, they don't go to school. Um, they earn less, they're less productive later on in life. And they're incredibly cheap to treat, so they cost about 50 cents per child. Um, and then the final charity I recommend is Give Directly, which simply transfers cash directly to the poorest people in the world, uh, you know, the very poorest people in, uh, living in Kenya. And about 90% of the money that you give ends up in the mobile phone bank account of uh, those extremely poor people, which they then can then spend on whatever way they believe is going to most benefit themselves. Um, so it's the ultimate charity if you're really worried about you know, white knights coming over to try and help the problems of some of a country they don't really understand. And uh, the people who receive the money tend to spend it on assets like tin roofs and livestock. Uh, so yeah, that's the best place to donate, to look if you want just incredibly well-researched um, uh, like set of recommendations. So I want to, because I, I think that uh, there are people listening who will have some questions like those I'm going to ask. I'm going to, I'm going to challenge, um, I'm going to ask questions that I think mm-hmm. might, might push on a couple of places. Uh, the first mm-hmm. is, are there any organizations or resources like GiveWell.org that are less human-centric uh, and or uh, and the reason I ask is that the the ROI seems to be measured by the number of human lives saved. Are there other organizations or people who have evaluated causes cause driven nonprofits, NGOs, whatever they might be, that are not focused on the number of human lives saved? Um, yeah, so there's one that I actually helped to set up um, called Animal Charity Evaluators. And that's um, applying the same sort of, you know, attempting to have the same sort of level of vigor and research. But if you just, if who you want to help are just uh, animals, um, where should you donate? And they're a much smaller operation than GiveWell, but um, again, you can check them out for uh, their sort of recommendations. Uh, in terms of if you're thinking about the environment, um, there I'm just less sure, actually. GiveWell are starting to broaden their um, research that they do. So they're working with a foundation called uh, Good Ventures, mm-hmm. um, which is set up by uh, Carrie Tuna and Dustin Moskowitz, who's one of the Facebook co-founders. Mm-hmm. Um, and there they're looking into a much wider variety of causes beyond just global health and um, global development. 
including things like climate change, um, fundamental research, policy reform, especially immigration reform and criminal justice reform, and trying to look for, you know, comparing across all different causes you could be interested in, what are those that are particularly great in scale, so it's just a very big problem, particularly neglected, so there aren't very many other like philanthropists or actors trying to solve this problem, so it's not very crowded, um, or uh, particularly tractable, so where there's just really great um, programs that uh, haven't yet been funded, but that you know, we, we know are going to make a really big difference. And some of the ones they're championing are um, yeah, improving conditions of animals in factory farms, uh, improving uh, immigration policy, uh, improving criminal justice policy to reduce the number of um, uh, people who are incarcerated while at the same time uh, in, you know, maintaining the same level of, or better levels of public safety and then also um, risks from, of kind of global catastrophe from uh, new technologies or from climate change or from uh, developments in biology and so on. Got it. Thank you. Uh, related question or quandary maybe for I think a lot mm -hmm. of people listening. So if, if you look at a given high need population. Let's just mm -hmm. say we're looking at, you gave Kenya as an example. We're looking at Kenya. Mm -hmm. The, the reflex seems to be to help the poorest of the poor. Mm -hmm. Are there philosophers or philanthropists out there that you respect who disagree with that? In other words, people who say you could give $10 to the 10,000 poorest people in Kenya, but I prefer to try to f identify the, say, 200 most promising young students who could become the leaders of tomorrow mm -hmm. uh, and you know, take their country, break the cycle of poverty in this country through policy reform and this, that, and the other thing as engineers, blah, blah, blah. But it's a much more expensive per person proposition, probably, right? Maybe they have to be sent to the U S or Cambridge or Oxford mm -hmm. for education, mm -hmm. for instance, uh, how are people thinking about that? And is there anyone who it's, it's politically safe to say we want to focus on the poorest of the poor. No one's going to mm -hmm. rake you over the coals publicly for that. Right. But yeah. it, are there people who take the opposite approach, uh, you know, whose arguments you think have, have some validity or that, that, uh, are interesting. Yeah, so I think there are a couple of uh, good arguments here. So one is, yeah, so in terms of the argument for focusing on the poorest, it's just because of diminishing marginal returns for money and the fact that, so in rich countries, if you're, you know, earning above about $10,000 per year, you're in the richest, you know, 15%, 10% of the world's population, even taking account the fact that money is, uh, goes further overseas. And if you're earning above about $50,000 per year, um, then you're only just 1% of the world's population. Um, and the poorest people in the world are only on about 60 cents per day or the equivalent of what $1.50 could buy um, in the U.S. Mm. And for that reason, you just additional resources to them just make such a much bigger impact um, than additional resources to people in richer countries. Uh, in my book that just came out, Doing Good Better, uh, I talk, talk about this as the 100-fold multiplier. A dollar, um, to me, is going to do... a less than a hundredth as much good as a dollar going to some of the poorest people in the world. But I think there are a couple of ways in which 
there can be things that you know focus on people that are already competitively well off um, that can do a huge amount of good, and that's um, one is kind of through research and innovation. So if you're increasing that, so huge amount of good has been done in the past through developments in um, science and technology and you know medical research. So mobile phones got developed by Motorola in the 70s, um, and now across sub-Saharan Africa, you know the majority of people own a mobile phone. Um, so you do get this kind of over the long term trickle-down effect as a result of research and innovation. And that tends to get underfunded by the market. Um, and then a second thing is if you can um, uh, kind of harness uh, these incredible resources, which are these very talented um, or, you know, very ambitious or more well-off people, um, and kind of direct them in a way that's going to do more social good. So that's, I mean, the approach 80,000 Hours takes. Uh, my nonprofit advises on career choice. You know, we... Uh, explicitly, a small operation, we need to focus. And so we focus on you know, those elite students, the kids coming out of Ivy League schools. Um, not because we think it's important, um, comparatively important to you know, make Harvard grads a little bit better off, but rather because you know, they're the people that are really going to be the leaders of tomorrow, they're going to be shaping the world. Um, you want them to be doing you know, more to um, improve the world, both by having more kind of motivation to do good and using that motivation in uh, as effective a way as possible. And so those are the couple of ways in which I think you can do a lot of good by, you know, focused on, you know, focusing on areas other than the very poorest of the poor at the moment. And um, there's, there's a, there's an organization that I'm involved with called quest bridge um, that people can check out if they're interested that I think is, uh, sort of along these lines, um, and it complements in a way the underserved students that I work with vis-a-vis donors choose. But Reed Hoffman and others are on the advisory board for QuestBridge, so people interested can check that out. Um, did an interview with Reed Hoffman for this podcast that discusses that on on some level. The if we wanted to convince people to help others. But to do it through pure self-interest, how would you how would you go about doing that? And what would the f- what would the form of giving look like? So, in other words, uh, if you can prove to someone they will be happier if they give enough to save the life of life of one person per year, for instance, right? I think we're going to get mm-hmm. into Andreas uh, a mm-hmm. bit. <clears throat> I think that would go a long way to. And I know this sounds maybe cynical and terrible, but mm-hmm. I, I don't think that saving a life is enough to get millions of people to donate money. Uh, it sounds terrible, but I mm-hmm. think that appealing to self-interest is the sort of the uh, the Trojan horse necessary to open them to that experience. Uh, how, what would it look like? And, and I started thinking about this very specifically over the last year, also because uh, you know I'm involved with various cause-driven companies, both nonprofit and for-profit. Uh, and I took my, my family, took my, my parents and uh, siblings on a trip to Iceland last year. It was the first mm-hmm. time that we'd taken a family trip in 15 years or so. And the anticipation of that was so much fun and made it 
so much more valuable to the entire family, all of the brainstorming and the researching and the sharing of photos mm-hmm. and so on, before it happened that I started thinking of how that type of structure could be wrapped around something like cause-driven companies, whether nonprofit or for-profit, right? So, so if somebody really wanted to get just pure self-interest, I want to improve mm-hmm. my quality of life, my optimism, uh, my self-reported well-being, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. How should they do it? Um, yeah, so I think, um, I mean, the psychology evidence itself does suggest actually that giving, I mean, it suggests a couple of things. One is just that money is actually way less important than we'd think to, you know, making ourselves better off. The relationship between higher levels of income and higher levels of happiness is really very low indeed. Whereas other things like um, having a really good community around you um, is actually very important to, you know, having a group of friends that really like you is very important to uh, being better off. Uh, And so one thing is just, yeah, if you want to, like, start doing good, especially, like, the effect of altruism community, suddenly you find you've got, like, thousands of, you know, new friends who really want to support you and um, make you do better in life. Um, And that's, I think, one reason where the people who have, like, in, you know, my peers who have started giving actually feel, including myself, just actually feel really good about this decision. Um, Another thing is just the direct um, effect of giving. You get a kind of warm glow. Uh, So people do tend to feel, like, and they've done little... Uh, psychology experiments on this as well, looking at uh, people who donate rather than spending money on themselves. And people tend to feel happier after having donated. They feel better about themselves. Is there any particular type of donation uh, or type of cause that has the most significant impact in that respect? Does that make sense? Like, is it, for instance, you know, is the... And I know we don't want to do this, but yeah. if we put efficacy aside, like, is there, mm-hmm. yeah. what are the characteristics of the donation that has the most persistent effect on happiness, you know, self-reported yeah. well-being, yeah. happiness, all that stuff? Yeah. Is it the like flipping through the pamphlet to find, you know, choose between the goat or the chicken or the fill in the blank for the yeah. picture, you know, the kid who's pictured in the back? Is it yeah. something else? What is what are the characteristics of a sort of uh, yeah, so selfish, I, selfishly fulfilling charitable giving event. Yeah, so I don't know if there's any research done on this, but I suspect it would be, uh, if I'm honest, not exactly the sort of things I tend to promote. Um, it would be things where uh, it's very, you know, your donation's quite public, um, but not in a way that comes across as sanctimonious, but that just that people know you're doing a lot of good and where you get the kind of positive feedback as a result so uh probably donations um within your own community or where you can see the kind of tangible benefits of what you're doing um the you know that's going to be a really big factor and then i guess um if donations if you're part of like a peer network where you've got a number of people kind of all doing the same thing that's also going to be and so and those people who are kind of self-reinforcing so also saying, like, yeah, that's really awesome what you're doing. You're this you know, really good person as a result. Uh, I suspect that's also going to be one of the biggest ones in terms of um, you know, increasing your level of happiness. Whereas purely, I, I suspect that um, you know, donating to someone just on the street where you never hear from them again, uh, that's going to be among the worst because that's, um, 
you know, that tends to sell you by making you feel guilty for a time and then you donate in order to alleviate the guilt rather than this, there's this positive kind of ongoing thing where you get uh, consistent feedback, in term, whether that's from the community or from the people you can actually see who you're benefiting. Well, it's a, um, it's a negative yeah. reinforcer, right, as opposed to that's a positive right. reinforcer. And yeah, like, exactly. if, you, if you look at dog training or really any mammalian training, that doesn't produce a lot of enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Carrots work and sticks don't, at least not in the long run. And the kind of worry I have about fundraising in general is that you get this competition between charities and you get this late to, race to the bottom where they hold up bigger and bigger sticks and it means that people just end up getting annoyed or fatigued by these constant requests for donations. Well, right. And um, I, I, we're, we're going to talk about Y Combinator if, oh, yeah. in a second, but I, I want to make sure we come back to this because <clears throat> I think many people – more people would be willing to get involved with charities or nonprofits if they felt they would stop getting annoyed. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's, or that there wouldn't be incessant follow-up with guilt, 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 like every letter they receive. So yeah, I think exactly. a lot of, a lot of people don't want to open the door to that type of haranguing and kind of, uh, in incessant, barking so to speak so they'd never take the first step does that make sense yeah yeah no that's exactly Um, right well you know what let's let's just cover it now if you could make a plea or a suggestion to people involved with nonprofits out there and say stop doing this this and this start doing this this and this what would be on those lists yeah i mean one thing uh for sure so i used to work as a in the uk we call them chuggers or charity muggers uh, the people, yeah, people right. who are on the street who then harass you for it's kind of ten dollars a month. Uh, people seem to really hate that, um, as I know, having done it. Uh, and I think that's something that's like particularly, um, particularly damaging. Um, another is these pictures that you get of you know children in poverty with bloated stomachs and flies in their face, and it does a couple of bad things. Just one is just that it makes people really not want to get involved because it's these kind of horrific images that very naturally you want to steer away from. And then also just paints this really bleak picture of, and kind of quite the disrespectful picture of uh, people in poor countries as those who are just helpless. Whereas I think if you were, like you say, doing positive reinforcement, so instead you're like, hey, um, you know, this person donated um, – $1,000 and was able to deworm two whole schools. Isn't that amazing? That's like much more compelling. And if you could get charities to kind of band together uh, to have that approach, then I think you'd do a lot more good. And then I think the second thing would be um, in terms of the amounts that are asked for, I think there's also a race to the bottom in terms of different charities wanting to ask for less and less um, because – you know, if you've got a choice, oh, one advert's asking me to give $10 a month and others asking me to give $2 a month, I've got the same feeling of guilt and I could resolve it either way, then I'm going to donate for $2 a month. But I think that's just not an appropriate reaction if the images they're showing you are of these starving children. And so again, I kind of, I'd rather if we campaign to say, the amount you should give is 2%, like everyone should give 2%, and then, you know, it's up to you where you give it, but that's what you should be aiming to do. And then it's just this one-off thing. It's just this one campaign. You don't get asked in all these. Because, I mean, this is part of a classic bit of social psychology is you want to disaggregate costs and, and, sorry, disaggregate benefits and aggregate costs. Where kind of getting 
asked to make a donation as a kind of cost, it can be a bit unpleasant. But then you want the benefits, the kind of awards you get to be uh, as recurring as possible. And so having different charities saying, look, this is the standard, 2% of your income, or you know, maybe you could try for more, but that I think would be a decent amount to publicly say. Um, then I think people could, and you know, you can make a huge difference with this. I think people could really get behind that um, and would start to have a more positive view of charity and trying to help others. Let's segue to Y Combinator. So Y Combinator, for those people who are unfamiliar, is it's, it's, it's like the the Harvard All Souls <laughs> Navy SEALs of uh, <laughs> startup accelerators. Uh, and uh, they would dislike the term incubator, but a lot of people have a better familiar, a familiarity yeah. with that. People apply. Very few get accepted. And uh, there's some huge companies that have come out of it, Dropbox, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, you participated in Y Combinator as a nonprofit, um, which I think is unexpected to many people uh, or, right. or seems like a mismatch. Uh, can you describe how you came to apply and get accepted to Y Combinator? Tell me the story of how that happened. Uh, yeah, so uh, the charity was 80,000 hours. Um, that's the career advice one uh, that went to Y Combinator. Uh, and we had been doing research into you know, different career paths. And one we recommended really highly, actually, uh, was tech entrepreneurship. Um, and that was for a few reasons. One is because we think that early on in your careers, you should be really just trying to think about the long term. You should think about trying to build up yourself as a person, your skills, your network, your credentials, how much you're learning. Um, and trying to run a startup is you know, one of the best things you can possibly do for that. Um, or being in the early stages of a startup as an early employee. It uh, also has potentially great payoffs in terms of the good you can do through entrepreneurship. Um, I can tell you about some really amazing companies that are doing incredible things to improve the world. Um, and then also, if you do get really big, if you are, have founded a Dropbox or an Airbnb or something, then you have huge financial resources that you can use to um, make an absolutely massive difference, like as Bill Gates has done. Uh, and so we were promoting that quite heavily, and um, that meant... But when Y Combinator started to say, okay, we want to do nonprofits, um, we're going to open, open the doors to nonprofit applications where they'll just give a grant instead of an investment, uh, a lot of people then contacted us. Uh, and we thought, yeah, this is just a perfect fit. We have the same sort of mentality. So the nonprofit space can be very stale, um, very unambitious, very unoriginal, whereas we want to be really big. Um, we want to, we think we can give the best advice in the world for people who want to make a difference with their careers. And we think like we can reach, we want to reach everyone who's graduating from university. So we have big aims. We're focused on numbers. Uh, we actually are thinking in quite a similar way to a for-profit startup. Y Combinator does seem like a really pretty good home. So made the application and it's a very funny process because, uh, there's the application form and a one minute video. So everything is incredibly condensed in terms of what the partners actually review. Um, application form in a one-minute interview, one-minute video of yourself. And uh, we just got drunk and filmed it. What are you supposed to put in the one-minute interview? Or the one-minute, excuse me, video you incepted me. Uh, what, do you, what is the content of that one-minute video supposed to be? Yeah, so in that one-minute video, you talk about, I mean, you can talk about anything. Sometimes it's just a conversation between the founders. Um, 
but for us, we talked about uh, actually included the warm up that we were doing to get ourselves psyched up for a couple of twenty seconds. It was just us singing. Um, but then uh, talking about what exactly eighty thousand hours does, what's the problem, how are we going to grow, why are we, why do we think we're a team that's good enough that we're actually going to be able to become an absolutely massive organization. Um, that was kind of how we approached it. But the key thing is just, and this is amazing how often founders fail to do this, is just actually conveying what you do. Um, because you get the curse of knowledge where you're so invested in this project that it's, you know, you've got so much detail and so much on your mind. But then when you actually try and convey it to someone uh, who isn't as familiar, then uh, you completely bastardize it and people have no idea what you actually do. Yeah, you so, drown them in the minutiae and they can't see the big picture. Yeah, exactly. And this is something that the Y Combinator partners were just so good at. You know, every single week we just have to give the one sentence description of what we do. And for us, it's eight thousand hours gives um, career advice for people who want to make um, a big social impact in their lives. Uh, so just actually explaining that and explaining exactly how you do it is just um, was absolutely the key thing. And when were you at Y Combinator then? So yeah, we were the summer batch. So just the last three months of the summer, basically June, July, August. June, July, uh, August, two thousand fifteen. That's exactly right. What What were the most important things you learned or skills you developed at Y Combinator? Yeah. So the whole thing felt like this exhilarating learning experience, a whole new lens on how you build something to get very big, uh, and one, so a lot, of, a lot of great pieces of advice. One is just to focus on the product basically exclusively. You'll constantly be tempted to spend your time doing things that make yourself look cool to your friends and family, but that aren't actually making a better product and that aren't therefore helping with growth. So, you know, you tend to do press. You'll be tempted to, do, to hire a lot of people because then you can say, oh, well, we've got 20 people on the team. Um, whereas hiring actually just takes a lot of time away from uh, just trying to build a better product. Yeah. Um, the other thing is just focusing, picking your metric. Um, so for us, that's the number of people. Ultimately, that's just the number of people whose plans we've changed in a very significant way. Um, and focus on growing that metric by 10% every week. So, you know, we'd been growing at something like, uh, you know, kind of doubling in size every year. And that makes us in the top 1% of charities, I think. Um, they, 10% every week, that's 142 times every year. It's just a totally different kind of level of ambition. Um, and that really gives you focus so that you're insured on doing just what's going to um, make your company, or in our case, charity, um, you know, bigger and better every single week, and just doing whatever it takes to hit that 10% growth um, target. Yeah, that um, focus on product in in all of you know, I have about forty angel investments now, and if you look mm-hmm. at that sample set and pick out the uh, the biggest winners, um, and some of them are on paper still, but a lot of them mm-hmm. have, have already had large liquidity mm-hmm. events. All of them ruthlessly focused on product to the extent that if I brought them an amazing press or business de- you know biz dev business development opportunity partnership of some type, they would say. That looks great, but we're heads down on product, just not the right time. But we'll you know, yeah, be yeah. sure to reach out in five months, six months. And it's 
that ability to say no to focus on product, which as you know, in this day and age is the best approach to uh, marketing and customer acquisition that you can take mm-hmm. since word travels organically. If, uh, yeah, if you take right. that approach, um, e- easily the most common denominator when you, when you look at the, uh, the home runs in my portfolio, the, um, I'm going to come back to YC in a second, but you mentioned mm-hmm. startups making a big difference. And mm-hmm. w- one of the startups I'm involved with, for instance, is Duolingo and Duolingo mm-hmm. now has, I want to say a hundred million plus users who are learning languages for free on Duolingo. And the founders include mm-hmm. uh, Luis Van An, who was the effectively creator of CAPTCHA and ReCAPTCHA, which was sold to Google. And it's, it's mm-hmm. a very brilliant model. I mean, they're, they're pulling c- real content offline or from clients who are paying to have things tra- uh, translated and using the crowd to translate while simultaneously teaching them different languages, right? So yeah, ostensibly, yeah. you end up in two very interesting positions. Uh, you, have, you have hundreds of millions of people learning languages more effectively than through paid programs for free, indefinitely. And then you also have the ability to generate revenue through translation and, and certification and other things. Uh, yeah. And then you also have the ability to rapidly translate. So you could crowdsource, say, uh, putting... You know, turning Wikipedia into some lesser-known language in mm-hmm. 50, mm-hmm. 50 hours of, of total um, time, which would be, of course, thousands or tens of thousands of hours of human time, but it would be simultaneous through this program, right? So they are, I think, going to have and are having a huge impact. Um, what are startups that come to mind for you for profit that are having a huge yeah. impact? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's a great example, and one of the things with for-profits is you can just get so big and get so big so quickly. So being able to reach 100 million people, um, uh, you know, it's absolutely phenomenal and, and quite hard to do if you're functioning as a non-profit because you're constantly having to fund base. Um, my favorite example of a for-profit company making a really big impact, again, set by someone in the effective altruism community, is also Y Combinator alumnus is called Wave. And it makes remittances cheaper, basically. So... Globally, remittances that are sending money from um, a country that you've immigrated to um, back to your home country, which is typically poorer, but to your family there. So it's an absolutely huge deal. So it's about half a trillion um, dollars are sent in remittances every single year. And compare that to um, overseas development aid spending, it's actually remittances are several times as great. But if you're a Kenyan in Maryland and you want to send money back to Kenya, um, it's a real hassle. You have to go to a Western Union. The Western Union takes 10%. And what Wave are doing is enabling, enabling you to send the money mobile to mobile, so it's much easier. And they'll also only take 3%. Uh, and they're growing phenomenally fast at the moment. They've already got uh, thousands of users and uh, um, tens of thousands of users and are moving millions of dollars, even though they only just set this up, uh, only launched um, about six months ago. Uh, and the potential there, you know, if you just do the math, if they're able to uh, um, really make a significant change to uh, the amount of money that's being flown, uh, that's flowing to poorer countries and remittances, it's just tens of billions of dollars um, every single year going from richer countries to poorer countries and kind of not getting taken by these middlemen companies. So it's got an absolutely astonishing kind of opportunity to have a really big impact. So if um, 
if you reflect back on your time at, at YC, as the kids call it, uh, <laughs> uh, what were the most common debates you had with other participants in YC or with the partners? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, one thing that was very common was uh, how much time to spend on things that are going to grow your user base rather than product. So they said, you know, I said the advice, just always focus on the product. Um, but then there's always going to be exceptions, and you always wonder, well, is this one of these exceptional cases? Um, and that was just a, definitely a recurring issue because it's kind of hard to be um, to make the judgment call of, well, actually, we've already got this thing, and you're going to have to do some amount of uh, distribution. Uh, so that was a really kind of ongoing thing. Actually, as well, all the maybe a lot of the biggest debates were just. So Paul Graham is the founder of Y Combinator, and he has these essays. And Paul Graham is something of this kind of guru or god <laughs> amongst the Y Combinator startup community. And he has these teachings through these essays. And then when do you deviate from the teachings of... <laughs> when do you, guru, when guru do you violate the scripture? That's exactly right. That was the ongoing thing. So similarly, another piece of advice was, you know, don't take any investment during the period of Y Combinator. Um, it's just a distraction, just focus on growing. And then do all that after demo day, which is the big presentation when you pitch to 450 investors in a big room. Uh, but then, you know, people would get these, get approached by um, angel investors or VCs. And the question would be, well, should actually we be taking this? It looks pretty good. So again, this, there'd be ongoing uh, debates about, you know, when should they violate these rules? And Paul Graham even acknowledges this. He says every single year he gives the same advice to, startup companies every year everyone ignores it and then every year they say later oh i really wish you'd listen to this advice <laughs> and so that was kind of played out um in many different ways actually uh, similarly for recruitment as well that's something where they say don't you know you want to have this exceptionally high bar for who you hire um and you either want to be spending all your time going to hire because getting the best team especially the early team is just so vital um it's the most important thing that if you're going to be doing it, it has to be absolutely full-time. And the Airbnb founders, it was six months before they hired their first employee just because they wanted them to be so good. But again, there'd always be these questions, well, we could do more if we hired someone now. Is this one of these exceptional cases where we should violate that rule? So it was, that was the kind of theme in terms of the debates that, or things that were on people's minds. Yeah, that's, that's another one where Pascal's mugging will kick you in the nuts, right? Because if, <laughs> if you're like, well there's a 1% chance that they could be the Michael Jordan of exactly what I need. So let me hire of them. Let me hire mm -hmm. them. I mean, that's a, that's a very, that's a, like a kamikaze run, uh, yeah, exactly. at, at a ship. So you have to be very careful. Um, where does, where do, uh, favorite, where do some of your favorite philosophical frameworks, uh, have trouble in the real world? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's, I think all over the place, probably. So, um, uh, I mean, a big thing is just, there's so, like, the real world is just so messy. So you've got this idea, okay, I just want to do the most good. I want to um, help as many people as possible by as much as possible. 
then actually implementing that um, is like much harder to do. So, you know, in the early stages, for example, of giving what we can, when we were doing research into charity effectiveness, uh, we made kind of certain assumptions about, say, the quality of uh, academic evidence where there's this body of kind of research from economists that we were really pretty happy just to trust, like, because we're like, look, look, these are the scientists. They really know what they're talking about. They're giving these numbers. We're happy to go with those numbers. Um, and uh, it turned out, um, actually, like, loads of the search was really kind of crappy. Um, you really couldn't trust them in the, exact, in the way that um, it would have been hoped for. Uh, instead, you've just got to go a lot more with, you know, very in-depth, independent investigations of the evidence yourself. Um, and that was something where, you've got this kind of philosoph- you know, philosophical motivation and then you make an assumption, which is that the people doing the experimental work, the empirical work, that you can just kind of trust what they're doing. Um, turns out that's really sadly not the case. Science is a lot more broken than um, you'd think um, kind of coming into it. And so that was maybe like, uh, yeah, one case where you make certain assumptions about how best to do good, um, but actually... Actually, when you have to start confronting the really messy real world, things get a lot more complicated. Did you ever find, I don't know what accent that was that I just threw out, but that's okay. (laughs) Uh, Did you ever find, uh, when surrounded by startup founders at Y Combinator, that you felt demotivated in any way because you've pledged to donate everything you earn over around $36,000 per year to whatever charities you believe will be most effective. Did you, mm-hmm. Do you find it that that is ever a demotivator, the lack of that financial incentive? Um, and I only ask because the, the ambitious set, the smart and ambitious set who make it into Y Combinator, they're not, not one-dimensional from a financial standpoint, but many of mm-hmm. them want mm-hmm. to build large companies to get exceptionally, exceptionally rich, yeah. uh, among, yeah. uh, among other things, right? And there are case studies of what... Yeah, there are case studies of the, the incredible realities you can create for yourself if you win one of those lottery tickets or if you can mm-hmm. ex- execute well enough to become one of those lottery tickets. Um, what was your experience like? Yeah, so I think in terms of my personal motivation, it's almost the opposite, I think. Um, since uh, I like, you know, decided, okay, I really want to make, use my life to make a big impact, including making this commitment to give away most of my income, that's made me way more motivated because now it's not just kind of me on the line. It's like all these people that I'm aiming to help. Um, it's like, you know, I could... Uh, not all the time because I'd burn out, but sometimes it's the feeling of kind of urgency you get in like a war situation or something. You're like, whoa, no, this is a crisis. It's an emergency. You've got to do something. Um, and if I was just, you know, just out for doing myself, then I'd be, I think, much happier to have a, uh, a somewhat more relaxed life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do feel, you know, definitely during Y Combinator, I'd feel envious of the for-profit companies because in some ways. So the two ways I think are just, yeah, three ways maybe. One is just how quickly you can grow because you can get investment. So the top one company to companies were getting $3 million of investment two days after demo day. Uh, whereas if you're a non-profit, then you're just having to go around soliciting donations. It takes, uh, you know, we have really great donors who are just very rational and 
uh, it's not as arduous, nearly as arduous for us as it is for many other nonprofits. But even still, it's just much slower as a process for growing. Second is in terms of the st- scale you can reach. Um, I think something like only 50 charities have grown to more than $50 million of revenue in the last 40 years. Whereas, you know, Airbnb, it's just less than 10 years, grows to a $20 billion company. Um, many other examples of this as well. And given the kind of scale of our ambition, that's also something that makes me think, yeah, actually, that's a really pretty good model. And then, yeah, the final thing is um, in terms of the sort of talent you can affect in as well. Um, working as a nonprofit, uh, you have the kind of, you just not, it's much harder to be able to pay competitively to try and get in those people who are just super ambitious themselves. So then you've got a much smaller pool of people, those people who are just motivated, who are much more motivated by uh, the kind of impact they're going to have. And that's like, you know, an extra, extra difficulty as well. So it definitely made me appreciate um, the benefits of kind of for-profit models if you're wanting to have a really big impact. If, if you look at, this is, um, this is another question I think a lot of people wrestle with, give now or give later. And mm. the reason I ask is that uh, if people were to survey the philanthropists currently most famous for rationally giving and making an impact, mm-hmm. you would find people like Gates, for instance, yeah. right? But the reality of Gates is that, <laughs> and uh, no offense, Bill, but he, <laughs> he was a predator who became an icon, who became a philanthropist. Mm-hmm. He, he, he was not... Uh, you would not consider him an alt- an altruist uh, for the first few decades of his career. Yeah. And so there are people, I actually had someone say to me not too long ago, you know, Mother Teresa was a narcissist. <laughs> Bill Gates yeah. with a strike of the pen can do, you know, a hundred times more mm-hmm, than she ever mm-hmm. did in her lifetime. And therefore, uh, if you have a, a, even a small likelihood of developing the, sort of dynastic wealth of someone like a Gates, you're better served uh, rather than kind of shaving off speed by donating along the way to focus all of your efforts on building an empire that you can then use for the greater good. Uh, and no doubt this is not the first time that you've, you've heard this type of thinking. How do you respond to that? Or how do you, th- yeah. how do you, how do you contend with that type of yeah. thinking? So I actually just, it's such an interesting question. I actually, I often judge when I'm giving talks. I often kind of judge audiences by whether this question comes up. Because <laughs> I'm like, this is a good audience. Um, uh, but no, it's so it's so interesting. So I think like, um, yeah. I mean, firstly, I think you can do as Gates did, just a huge amount of good by what I call learning to give, and have promoted that. Where you know you aim to do good through your ability to donate rather than through direct contribution of your labor. And I think you know, not it's not the right path for everybody, but. I think a lot more people should consider that than currently do. Uh, In terms of then when should you be donating, I think there's just a few reasons on either side. So if you've got these amazing investment opportunities uh, that are just going to really pay off, then you should definitely take them. Where going to college is the clearest example. If you're um, age 18 coming out of high school, then you you could just start earning money and donating it right away. But that would be a real mistake. You should definitely get a degree, especially if you can go to a good university. 
um, just because of the impact it has uh, for the rest of your life. And actually, in general, when um, we give advice at 80,000 hours, we think that people really underinvest in the long term because uh, with their careers. Because most of, the, you know, most of your hours that you're going to be spending working is going to be after the age of 30. Um, and also that's when you're more influential. It's when you're, in, like, you're running an organization rather than interning for it. Um, whereas a lot of people who want to do good immediately go and work in a nonprofit. Uh, where they're not going to get as good training or um, uh, skills, network, credentials, money as they would um, in other other places like the for-profit world or um, sometimes further education as well. So I think a lot of the time, actually, people should be investing more than they do. When it comes to the idea of just, okay, I'm already earning a lot, but I'm just going to invest it all again in um, building up my own organization. I'll donate it at the end of my life. you know, alarm bells ring for me a bit because a lot of people say that and they never actually follow through. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. And so I think, like, minimally you should start donating a pretty significant percentage just to get yourself in the habit of it, just so you know you're not telling yourself this lie. Um, I think there are other thoughts as well. So, like, um, donating has its own sort of compounding. It's like a sort of investment. So um, when someone in Kenya buys a metal roof, they get this amazing return on that investment. It's like 14% per year or something. So if you're giving to that poor household in Kenya who then buys the metal roof, that money that you've given compounds over time. You don't see it because the effects are kind of diffuse, but you've made the whole country um, that little bit richer in a way that compounds just in the same way as if you put it in a bank. Um, On the other hand, though, you also just might really not know, uh, know what the best ways of doing good are. And so you might want to wait until we've just got better information or you have like better views or actually able to think about this. And I think that's maybe with a lot of entrepreneurs kind of what's going on. Maybe you feel this yourself as well. You look, I've got so much going on. You know, if I really want to do a really good job of uh, philanthropy, that takes time. And so I'm just not able to think about this. I'm going to have to punt it to a later stage. And so I do think there's a reasonable argument to be made there, but uh, Maybe the things you could do is start kind of binding yourself to the mast a little bit. Maybe you can make some public commitments, make some like big declarations publicly such that you know that if you back out of them, it's going to be really embarrassing. Or you can take, um, you could take a pledge. So I'm an advisor of an organization called the Founders Pledge, uh, which uh, encourages people, which is, provides you with a contract so you can legally bind yourself to give at least 2% of your income or 2% of the profits that you make when you exit your company. Um, and I think that's, you know, again, one of these things where you can say, okay, uh, to begin with, I'm just going to focus on, you know, building this thing as much as possible. But I know that I've like actually locked down my intention so that I'm going to follow through on this later on. That's the founder's pledge. Founder's pledge. That's right. How many people have made that pledge to date? That's a contractual obligation. That's a contractual obligation. Who is the counterparty? Who are you contractually obligated to? So the way that works is uh, used to can donate anywhere ultimately, but uh, it has to have an entity in the contract just for legal purposes. So you donate to this organization, um, the Founders Pledge itself, that would then redistribute the money wherever you wanted it to go. I see. So you don't have to make a decision about where the money goes until you've, you're actually making the donation. They act as a trustee of sorts. That's right. Yeah, kind of intermediary. Got it. Uh, well, I've read uh, you uh, 
right following your passion can be a mistake. <laughs> yeah. uh, could you elaborate on that? Yeah. So um, when it comes to career advice, there's all these slogans that go around, the chief of which is follow your passion. And the idea is like, it's kind of like the idea of having a soulmate or something. So you just look inside yourself and you've got this calling and it's like, oh, I should be an artist. And then you see that calling inside yourself and that's what you should go and do and that's the way to be happy. And I just think this is terrible advice. And that's for a number of reasons. So um, one is just that, actually, one is just that most people don't have work-related passions. So there was one study that found that most people were really passion, passionate, study of students, but they were passionate about things like arts, music, um, sports, things that are incredibly difficult to actually work in, uh, precisely because everyone's passionate about them and so everyone wants to pursue them. So it's not really taking the world or what the world needs into account. And uh, it sets you up for kind of anxious soul-searching or then trying to pursue this thing that just statistically speaking you're probably not going to be successful at. But I think it also just misconstrues the nature of you know, finding a satisfying career and satisfying job, where the biggest predictor of job satisfaction is mentally engaging work. So that's the nature of the job itself. It's not actually got that much to do with you, though obviously that is important to some extent. It's whether the job you know, provides a lot of variety, gives you good feedback, allows you to exercise autonomy, um, contributes uh, to the wider world. You know, does it actually, is it meaningful? Is it actually making the world better? Um, and also when it, whether it allows you to exercise a skill that you've developed. And then that's the final thing where you might think following a passion you turn up to that as well, do something you're good at. But the thing is, if you're just starting out um, on work, you're probably just not that good at many things that are work-related. You know, when I was graduating, I hadn't done any, really done any management or fundraising or marketing or any sort of anything of the skills that um, actually get used day-to-day in a work life. And so what you should be thinking when you're first coming out of university is you should be thinking like an experimental scientist or investigative journalist or something. You should be thinking, well, what are my hypotheses about the things I could become good at? And then actually going into the world and then testing that, finding out, um, hey, like maybe I could become good at coding and that's something that the world really needs at the moment. It's just huge demand for coders. Um, and then actually going out and trying that. Uh, because... Um, People's preference, that's the final thing, is just people's preferences and passions change massively um, in ways that people systematically underpredict. So if you think back 10 years, what were you like 10 years ago? What were the things you're really passionate about? Probably quite different from the things you're passionate about now. Um, but yet when we think in 10 years' time, we think, oh, no, I'm just set. I'm the same person now. Um, and so really what you want to be doing to begin with is um, building up like a broad array of skills, figuring out what are the things I can become good at. And that's, gonna, that's the much better way to lead to um, kind of a successful and effective life. I agree on all those points. And I think that there's, there's, another, there's another bullet, which is, uh, I, I wrote an article years ago, I think it's just called The Myth, The Dangerous Myth of the Dream Job. And mm-hmm. I think the other... Well, there there are two issues uh, that I'll underscore. The first is, as you said, humans are very bad at predicting what will make them happy. Uh, Extremely famously, Mm -hmm. statistically Mm -hmm. (laughs) bad. Uh, There's a great book by Daniel Gilbert called Stumbling Upon Happiness that goes into some depth on this. Now, that's great. Pretty depressing conclusion. 
how do you address it? I think uh, the, the the second bullet is realizing that the one of the best ways to extinguish your passions sometimes, if you are using it to be synonymous with hobbies, let's say you mm-hmm. surf on the weekends, on uh, you wake up on a Saturday and you surf every Saturday, you love surfing, therefore you think you should follow that as your passion. Very different. That experience and the purpose of that experience is very different from waking up at six every morning to take you know investment bankers out to surf every morning from Monday to Friday, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the I think people overestimate the persistence of their enthusiasm. Yeah. In that in that switch from optional activity, you know, electional to obligatory. Yeah. Um, and being in philosophy, I'm. You know, very familiar with this. So I'm one of the, you know, I'm really lucky in terms of the position I got. There's, you know, far more people wanting to do philosophy than um, as a career that actually make it. And you see so many people like this who got into it because they really love this subject. They just wanted to learn. They found it incredibly uh, intensely satisfying. And then they real, then they find out that actually in the real world of work to do this, they've just got to jump through loads of hoops and do loads of networking and bureaucracy and admin just as if they were in any other job. And it can be really pretty dissatisfying. You can end up, um, you know, it can be really actually pretty tragic where you end up hating the thing that you, end up, that you used to love the most above everything else. Which is very common, uh, yeah. extremely common. So you are a very effective young man, I would say. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> you know, you're welcome. It's objectively. Uh, I think it's pretty easy to objectively assess. Uh, you've achieved. You've 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 achieved many things that it would take people a lifetime to achieve if they achieve it at all. So congratulations, first and foremost. But the the question I'd love to ask is what book or books do you give the most to other people as gifts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we talked a bit about the moral philosophy. That was Peter Singer and Derek Parfit. So I definitely give them. Then, But for uh, in terms of just improving your life and um, just being more effective, the two I'd mention. One is Mindfulness by Mark Williams and Danny Perlman. Um, and... You know, having had Sam Harris on the show, obviously your listeners will know about this, but mindfulness meditation is uh, the most, I don't know, it's kind of like this magic bullet um, technique that uh, uh, kind of science has just recently cottoned on to, um, where in effect you train yourself um, to be more in control of your thoughts and emotions uh, by realizing that the current thoughts and emotions um, are not you. They don't define you. They're like propaganda, and it's up to you to choose how you react to them. Um, and our instinctive way, which is to fight with them, is actually counterproductive. Instead, you want to accept them with warm and welcome uh, kind of curiosity almost. And then that means you have the ability to deal with them as you like. Uh, and that's got the most amazing evidence base in terms of Basically, seems to improve everything, but in particular, mood and self-control. Who are the authors and of this again? Mark Williams, um, a professor at uh, Oxford in psychology, who is the real kind of champion of. Uh, <laughs> You're really part of the Oxford mafia. 
I know, I know. It's also it's also nepotistic. Um, that was a coincidence, though. Uh, it's actually one of the few authors I've written to just to say, look, this book has just significantly improved my life. Um, you should be very happy of what you've achieved. Awesome. Um, uh, and then uh, Danny uh, Perlman, I think his name is, uh, who um, is a kind of journalist, eh? um, but also promoter of these ideas. Mm-hmm. And it's just a really good course for it. Um, I liked it because I'm you know, a big science fan, so I hear something like meditation and I you know, get a little bit freaked out. It sounds a bit hippie for me. Um, whereas this is just, it's almost comically dull. <laughs> in fact, um, I mean, they give these kind of guided meditations and you're used to hearing this kind of female, high-pitched, dreamy voice. And instead you get this... Um, uh, you know, broad Midlands English accent saying, now sit on a rug or a chair or on a bed and close your, uh, close your eyes. And it's um, really very kind of surprising when you first listen to it. So it's just like the worst dad bedtime story ever, but effective yeah, nonetheless. <laughs> but then really good if you feel kind of intuitively a bit uh, skeptical of that sort of thing because um, it's a very friendly, very kind of accessible introduction um, to mindfulness uh, meditation and uh, it provides you with a course over eight weeks where you do a series of guided meditations uh, and you know I did that course and it's one of the things I think has had a really significant impact on my life. What is, do you have a daily meditation practice now? Uh, I actually don't but I'm going to start again I mean I think there's two things uh, yeah I think I'm going to start again just after, um, probably just after the gym, because um, I uh, go to the gym first thing every morning. Um, and then after that point, just do, you know, it can just be 20 minutes breathing um, where you first focus on your breath and then uh, extend that feeling of awareness to your whole body. Um, uh, I still meditate if I'm feeling... Uh, you know, stressed or anxious about something, it's a really nice kind of go-to, um, you know, go-to activity that you can do to kind of put yourself, kind of reset yourself. Right. Uh, but then also the other thing is just it starts to affect your entire approach to life. So, you know, you'll start to feel the rising panic and you're much more in tune with your bodily reactions that then turn into thoughts. Um, and then again, you can kind of catch those bodily reactions to begin with again, kind of slow down your breathing, um, focus on the breath, and then realize that it's up to you how you want to respond. Um, And that can be very powerful because it means you have much more choice about your emotional reactions to things. What was the second book? So the second book is The Power of Persuasion by Robert Levine. Hmm. Uh, So I'm really in favor of meta skills. Um, just these kind of general purpose skills that can uh, improve you, you know, improve your effectiveness in all areas of life. Um, and the, just the ability to be convincing, uh, to sell ideas and to persuade other people is um, one of the you know, most important um, of these skills, I think. Uh, I like to think of myself as you know, taking laziness and making it into a virtue because, um, you know, why do something when someone else could do it? Uh, if you can make that into a virtue, then suddenly you find you have all these volunteers helping you with this thing you're trying to create, and they turn into employees, and then um, they're away doing the sort of stuff that you could have 
instead just been slogging away in yourself uh, for you know years. So the power um, of persuasion. The power of persuasion, and it's not. I don't think it became that popular, but it's the best book on persuasion that I know of, actually. Levine. Uh, yeah, and it's um, it's quite a lot more in depth than uh, things like Caldini's Power of Persuasion and some of the other books in that genre. Um, but it's incredibly interesting um, and really lays out different principles for, like, the key ideas for. Um, persuading someone so like norms of reciprocity or escalating commitment uh also and also just really shows how being persuasive a lot is often just about being a really nice authoritative genuine honest person um so you know the key aspects of being persuasive are uh honesty um uh honesty and authority and many people they think oh well i want to become someone who can you know be persuasive they then turn into these kind of sleazy second-hand car salesman types and that's exactly the wrong thing to do um instead it's actually about being this uh um you know transparent person who really knows their stuff um and yeah i found that kind of very useful especially as someone who is trying to you know, my life is about selling people on certain ideas, ideas of effective altruism. Well, every, uh, I think everyone's lives are about selling other people on their ideas. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> basically. I mean, it's just, it comes up absolutely everywhere. Um, and it's just very thorough, very in-depth, and really goes, uh, to, goes to the level of breaking down into, like, really concrete principles. Like earlier, I mentioned um, you want to aggregate harms and disaggregate benefits. So um, it's you know, more enjoyable for you to win $50 one day and $25 the next than it is to win $75 one day. Um, whereas if that was a cost, then it would be, you'd prefer to just lose $75 at once rather than have two distinct losses. Right. So again, it goes to the level of very specific, um, very specific recommendations. And then also has amazing case study, studies of, you know, it does go to the best, uh, you know, stories of, working with the very best um, salespeople in all different areas of life. Um, so it's the best book that I've read on that topic. I'll have to check it out. Uh, your morning ritual. You mentioned working out first thing in the morning. What does the first 60 to 90 minutes of your ideal day look like? Yeah, so um, in terms of morning routine, well, I think the biggest, I think maybe the single piece of productivity advice or you know, productivity improvement I made was sleeping enough. Um, people's needs for sleep just varies massively um, from person to person. Some people can just sleep four hours a night and they're very lucky. I'm not one of those people. And coming to accept that was very important. So I aim to sleep nine hours a night. Um, and then, then when I wake up, it's really about getting up and going. When do you uh, wake up? What's your normal range? Yeah, I... Typically, typically about 9 a.m., so I'm not a super early riser either. I'm really not much of a morning person, actually. Um, so typically about 9 a.m. And then, yeah, it's just about getting up and going. So I eat things that I can hold in my hand. Um, I really hate cereal. I hate things where I have to, like, spend a lot of my time, uh, you know, because also the morning is my peak time in terms of uh, 
you know, mental performance. And so uh, I typically eat breakfast bars, which I'm sure you're going to chastise me for for being unhealthy. But um, <laughs> uh, uh, that's what I do in the morning. Go to the gym. Again, then that's probably the second most important uh, piece of productivity advice is just regular exercise. Again, because um, I feel like in terms of my life and what I've contributed, almost all of it is in terms of the highest quality work I'm producing rather than how many hours I'm producing. So the thought of like, oh, I can sleep less and then produce more hours is just completely false economy. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's just how can I produce the highest quality work? And for that, again, just exercising in the morning is the most important thing. Um, what type of exercise? To, what does your routine look like? Yeah, so now so I've suffered from uh, fairly severe back pain over the last year and a half, so that's changed things quite a lot. Um, uh, and now, so my favorite exercise, which I was able to do when I was in Cambridge, but uh, not here because I don't have the machine, is called a Jacob's Ladder. Um, do you know it? I do. Yeah, maybe you could describe it for folks. Describe it. So um, uh, it's wooden bars uh, forming a ladder that are on um, kind of conveyor belt. So they're constantly going down and you're constantly climbing up. So it's at about 45 degrees. So it's not vertical. Um, but if you know, if you've ever just tried to climb up a ladder, you get pretty tired pretty quickly. Um, and uh, you're attached to the machine so that um, you're able to set the pace as well. So it's kind of like a treadmill, except you're just climbing up these bars. Um, and it's great for me because it's low impact, because I can't do high impact stuff at the moment. Uh, but it's incredibly tiring. I remember when I first did it, I could do about two minutes, and then I would be completely conked out. Um, and then I would build that up. I built that up over time. Uh, and it's the most, you feel like your entire body is just um, completely spent by the end of it. It's, yeah, so it's my... Uh, favorite exercise and um, yeah and then ha- so how long does that workout last um, about an hour um, I initially uh, if my back's bad then I try and focus it to more like an hour and a half um, but that's a lot of that time is spent doing um, physio exercises so mm-hmm. how, uh, did, how did you hurt your back but, yeah I don't actually know <laughs> um, I think most cases of back pain actually don't have a clear um a clear problem, but I think it was bad posture. So uh, my best guess as to what's going on is anterior pelvic tilt. So yep. where your pelvis just tilts forward too much and yeah. you kind of stick out your belly, like kind of beer belly style. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so yeah. for there, the key is to really strengthen your glutes and uh, your abs, stretch out your hip flexors and your lower back so that you're strengthening the muscles that are pill- pulling your pelvis back and stretching out those that are pulling it forward. And you get all these problems from sitting all day. Um, I would have tel- terrible posture as well, so I've included that a lot, using ergonomic uh, kneeling chair, experimented with standing desk, um, and in general learning a lot about posture because really I think the kind of common conceptions of what good posture consists in are just completely wrong, actually. Um, uh, yeah, people think it's about sitting up very straight and very rigidly. Whereas actually it's more about getting the curve of your spine right. So um, having your hips tilted too far forward so that your lower spine um, makes your belly stick out, that's a very common problem. Mm -hmm. And then also having your shoulders kind of hunched forward and then your uh, neck and head up, kind of like a duck, another (laughs) very common problem. Um, 
And so actually, if you want to test your posture, you can just stand against a wall and you should only have two inches um, between, so just standing up straight against a wall, you should only have two inches between uh, the spine, your spine and the wall and between your, uh, the kind of curve of your neck and the wall. And for almost everyone who does that, they'll find that, uh, um, especially at the neck, there's just much bigger gaps than there should be. Yeah, it's also that's also hard if you have a horse ass like I do, I, like a sort of <laughs> Kim Kardashian ass. Uh, but the so for the back, I'll, a couple of things that, that might be helpful. Where do you feel the pain in your back? And this could be referral pain and not uh, mm-hmm. the 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 the, loca- the sensation of pain could might not be the location of the pathology, but where do you feel the pain the most? Yeah, so it's very lower back. Very lower back. So a couple of things that you might find interesting to play with there, if it's the low back, uh, would be number one, and you can check out Kelly Starrett. Maybe you've seen his stuff, Mobility Wad. Uh, He's been on the podcast as well. But trying to get the head of your femur uh, Mm -hmm. to seat uh, at the back of your pelvis. So by sitting constantly, it tends to get pushed to the front of the hip capsule and it causes all sorts of issues and soft tissue changes and whatnot. So if you look at exercises and they're pretty easy to do just like on your hands and knees and you lift one leg up and move your weight around as you apply it to, to, to one leg. Uh, But if you, if you were to look up sort of seating the, uh, the, the femur, uh, in in the pelvis and Kelly star, I think that could be very helpful. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, um, have have you considered using or used inversion tables or gravity boots so that you can no uh, so the I found this just just be tremendously valuable where I'm I'm decompressing my spine and and putting myself into a state of traction uh, I try to do it at least once per day and uh, most frequently I'll do that at night so I'll hang from my try this out because I've I've talked about this before on the podcast and I've had literally dozens of uh, men specifically, but my audience is, uh, or the people who listen to the podcast are about 80% male, uh, mm-hmm. come back and say that they've eliminated uh, years of back pain doing this. And I'm not a doctor, of course, so this isn't medical advice, but if you hang from your hands in the morning and then invert yourself at night for a short period of time, uh, and if you can't invert, there are other options, but you could look at teeter Teeter hangups, T E E T E R. There are different models, but mm-hmm, teeter mm-hmm. hangups. I use the boots. There are risks involved with hanging upside down, like Batman from a bar with boots on. Obviously, uh, you could use the inversion table. I just use the boots. Uh, and if you can't do either of those due to space constraints or travel or whatever, there's also a device called the Lynx L I L Y N X, which allows you to put your lower back into traction on the ground and it's very small. I have one about 15 feet from me behind my couch. Uh, and making it a habit just as an experiment to hang twice a day, once from your hands Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then again from your feet if possible. Uh, particularly for that, like iliopsoas pelvis low back complex. I I think you could find, um, yeah, yeah, that would be a worthwhile experiment. Um, this is great. I thought I knew all of the back, um, pain remedy tricks, but uh, you've educated me. <laughs> I'm you, you, try this you, you could also, uh, if you if you want to enjoy 
some masochism, but potentially uh, reverse some of the soft tissue issues that you have in no doubt in your pelvis from the sitting and the, the, the mm-hmm. sort of kyphosis lordosis that upper back rounding and then the anterior pelvic tilt, uh, that like sway back position is you could find an ART practitioner. I'm sure there are, uh, I, I don't know if the, there's probably one at, at the very furthest from you or maybe it's farthest. I always screw those up, uh, London, mm-hmm. but ART is active release technique and they'll basically take, they'll like form their hand into it, their fingers into like a ridge hand and, and dig it three or four inches into your pelvis and have you move your leg around. It's extremely mm-hmm. uncomfortable. Um, you might need a safety word, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, that, that can have a tremendous effect on mobility and, uh, the gliding of adjacent tissues and things like that. So those would be worth checking out, but I don't want to make this <clears throat> about me spouting off. But since I know a lot of people who've suffered from low back pain and I previously suffered from low back mm-hmm. pain, which I do not suffer from anymore, um, that would be a suggestion. And the other thing is I, what I've found is standing at a standing desk all day long is very challenging, particularly if you're moving from location to location. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I ensure that I walk, an hour a day, uh, which we're really evolved to do. We've made a lot of compromises from an evolutionary standpoint to be able to walk for long distances. Um, but that also helps to keep that hip, uh, complex functioning normally. Uh, and you're getting, uh, at that point, sort of a high volume of low intensity stretching, uh, which, which is very valuable. So, this would be my two cents, but uh, well, it's a big deal. I mean, so many people—it's like a plague or something. Um, yeah. Number of people who suffer from back pain, and then it just can be completely debilitating. I've lost months of productivity as a result. Yeah. So, what? What I would—I mean, you can speak to your PT about this, but I think that um, oftentimes the reason people have low back pain and then cannot squat is because they don't squat enough in the first place. Yeah. So the, the hanging, if you were to do that for a week, see how you feel and then find a good, uh, Olympic weightlifting coach, not powerlifting coach, find a good Olympic weightlifting coach who can train you to do, um, overhead squats. And, and it may take a long time for you to get to the point where you can do proper overhead mm-hmm. squats where you're not losing, uh, lower back stability. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that can be a complete game changer. I mean, I'm 38 and my hips and knees have are better than they've been in probably 15 years. And I directly attribute that to regular deloading and decompressing of the spine as mm-hmm. well as a regular squatting practice where I'm squatting every day, even if it's just for five repetitions with, uh, 45 pounds on the back, uh, or yeah. in front yeah. of me or overhead. Uh, so that's, um, a rather massive digression, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> it, well, you may have, yeah. Let me know how it goes. Yeah, yeah. You may have um, given me months of extra work, so you have <laughs> taken away a lot of pain. Yeah, I hope it, I hope it helps. I know how debilitating it can be. Uh, do you have any evening rituals? Any evening routines for winding down? Yeah, actually, I really don't have an evening routine. I mean, except insofar as. Uh, I always take an hour or two off before, like, before going to bed because I used to, you know, work until I wanted to feel fall asleep. But that's just again this false economy because it means you just wake up 
much less energized. And again, it's just eating into um, peak productivity time. Um, I travel a lot, so if I need to reset my sleep, then I take melatonin. Um, and then I focus a lot on getting high-quality sleep if I can. So most important there, just being completely shutting out light um, so that you're not waking up in the middle of the night at all. Mm. Um, but in terms of something to decompress myself, um, normally just the regular things of seeing friends or reading, generally trying to avoid um, watching TV or anything that's kind of bright, unnatural light. Mm-hmm. Speaking of bright and natural light, what are your what are your favorite documentaries or movies? Uh, so I think by far my favorite documentary maker is Louis Theroux. I don't know how popular he is in the U.S. He's a bit of a U.K. institution. Um, have you heard of him before? I've heard of him, but I couldn't name any of his work. Okay, so he. Um, I mean, the most the most interesting is Louis Theroux's Wild Weekends. He tends to go to places in the U.S. Uh, to these weird subcultures. And he does exceptionally well at um, becoming involved in those subcultures. So examples are neo-Nazis, um, survivalists, uh, the West of the Baptist Church, um, swingers, <laughs> off goes to prisons, yeah, porn, um, cosmetic surgeons, uh, and the well, black power movement. And he comes across just so bumbling and naive that the people he's filming then completely reveal everything about their own <laughs> crazy lives. Uh, um, and that's Louis and Thoreau. T- Louis H-E- Thoreau. T- Go ahead. T-H-E-R-O-U-X, that's right. And it's incredibly powerful because you see him interacting with these neo-Nazis and they're you know, grilling him on whether he's Jewish and he just keeps telling them he doesn't want to answer. Um, and, <laughs> uh, you know, and you see them... The, parents are getting their children to dance around the swastika um, as kind of morning playtime. And you think, wow, I'm so happy I'm not one of these people and you know, so enlightened because they're so mind-killed, they're so completely captured by this lone ideology. But it makes you think, wow, well, what are maybe the things I believe just because of the people that I'm surrounded by? Um, all these kind of cultural things because they're just completely convinced of this worldview Mm-hmm. or people who are looking for UFOs all day, um, or people who are certain that the government is going to come and crack down, um, or the West for the Baptist Church that thinks that literally everyone is going to hell apart from them. Um, and it makes you think, yeah, well, maybe the things that I, I believe myself that uh, are just, you know, in the future will be looked back upon as, uh, you know, and as crazy as I'm you know, looking at these, these communities and thinking that they're crazy. Oh, I think it's no, think it's no maybe at all. I think it's a, it's a hundred percent certain. I mean, the, uh, I think everybody should take the approach of good doctors and the, uh, or I should say the sort of perspective of good doctors, which is 50% of what we know is wrong. We just don't know which 50%. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, and I think, yeah. yeah, most people don't tend to act that way. They're much yeah. more too accepting of the status quo. Oh yeah. And it's just, uh, you know, the, the quote that I always use and no doubt should implement more in my own life. Uh, although I try quite hard is, uh, you know, when you find yourself on the side of ma- the, the, the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. That's Mark Twain. But most mm-hmm. people interpret that to mean the majority of say the U S whatever their nationality happens to be. And I would just say, no, no, no. Even the majority of your friends, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you have a narrative that you're telling yourself, 
and it's within a peer group, even if it's 10 people, 20 people, you should really yeah. examine that. Uh, yeah. You know, have a regular check-in. Um, and I think politics is the one that's the key, that's the biggest influence here where, I don't know, people will identify very strongly as very left-wing or very right-wing, but it like, always strikes me as a very strange thing to do because there's this package of very different ideas that are associated with the left or associated with the right that um, don't have any resemblance to each other. Like, why on earth should your, your um, views on abortion be related to your views on optimal taxation policy? They're just completely distinct issues, yet they come in these packages. And I think it's because people, you know, we're all monkeys about walking around wearing suits. We, uh, you know, we want to form tribes and then we start forming tribes based around, say, political identities. Um, But then that means you'll just start to buy a package of views rather than just um, looking at each one on their own own merit. Oh, I think, yeah, that that may be a whole separate conversation. (laughs) I I think humans can learn a lot about themselves and their biases by uh, reading at least one book on chimpanzee behavior. Um, Mm -hmm. There's one in particular that's popped up a lot uh, in my reading about animal training and evolutionary biology and whatnot, uh, because I have a new puppy, uh, adopted a mm-hmm. rescue puppy, mm-hmm. and it's called Chimpanzee Politics, Power mm-hmm. and Sex Among Apes, uh, written by Franz de Waal, W-A-A-L. Mm-hmm. And this book apparently was used by, and I think he's mentioned this publicly several times, Newt Gingrich in sort of amassing power and overcoming opponents in his political career. So it's... Um, it's, I think the parallels are fascinating and it's, it's, it's easy to, to get convinced. It's easy to convince ourselves that we are passionate about a particular position because the position has merit. Whereas in reality, I think a lot of it is just a hardwired, um, desire to fight and dominate and be right. And so on, which you can trace back to, uh, chimpanzee behavior or find parallels uh, and it's yeah. uh, it's depressing but I think also helpful at the same time yeah it's a really useful lens I think um, if you could have one billboard anywhere with anything on it what would it say it's a good question um, so I think it would be outside the Gates Foundation or maybe outside Bill Gates' house I don't know where it is but um <laughs> In Seattle, um, where you know he's going to ultimately he's going to donate hundred billion dollars, um, and it would say, "Bill, uh, you have taught like yeah, you know you've spoken about the risks and potential upside from in the long run developments of artificial general intelligence." Uh, yet you're not doing anything about it yet. You haven't got involved. You have the power to make a massive difference here. Uh, you should like do something about it. I think that's what it would say. So artificial intelligence, generalized artificial intelligence. Gen- human level and, and um, greater than human level artificial intelligence. Oh, that's it. I did not see that coming at all. So, you did not see that coming. I was, no, this is... Uh, late on into the interview, it's a whole other... Yeah, yeah. Other, this is act three. Uh, that is this, yeah. That's big debate in the media, but um, uh, yeah, I think just this is and like another Oxford professor, Nick Bostom, writing about this in a book called Superintelligence. Um, 
Oh yeah, very very famous Some, book. Yeah, very important book. Uh, where you know, very sometimes I think we just have. It's very hard to predict the future. Sometimes I think you have a um, a bit of an inkling into a, you're able to make really pretty educated guesses about what are going to be really big transformative technologies in the future. The sort of things like development of fission that you know has huge potential to do for power and also huge potential for harm through um, use of nuclear weapons. Uh, I think the case of development of artificial intelligence, you know, it's not next. It's not going to happen tomorrow. We're thinking about like 30 years or 50 years or by the end of the century. It's clearly, it's, you know, really pretty likely it's going to be um, one of the most or the most important development of the century when it does happen. Um, like in the case, you know, if we could have known about nuclear weapons or developing fission um, much earlier, we could have had policies in place such that we're really prepared for that and we wouldn't have maybe had a nuclear arms race the world would have been a much better place. I think that's the situation we're potentially in with developments of artificial intelligence as okay. well. Okay, so I was planning on wrapping up after <laughs> you know, another two minutes, but I can't let this one go. So you're hanging out with, uh, you mentioned Nick, Superintelligence. Yeah. You're surrounded by, or, it's, or you, you have access to some very smart people who have mm-hmm. thought a lot about this. Seems like you have as well. What percentage of those who are most educated about the potential implications, ramifications of AI are mm-hmm. strongly concerned that it's summoning the demon? Oh, summoning the demon. Um, yeah, I mean, summoning the demon is quite an extreme way of putting it. It uh, is. Well, like, yeah, I mean, that's the Elon Musk. Yeah, right, that's Elon Musk, Musk yeah. MIT. Uh, so it depends exactly on who the reference class is, but. Um, on some accounts, it's the large majority, actually, um, where, the, where then the media just completely distorts the debate because the media loves to distort debates. Right. Where if you're framing it as this is a really important issue, it's not gonna, it's not something that's gonna happen tomorrow. It's something that's a, like a long-term speculative issue. Um, but obviously, we need to have like a sensible, rational approach to this and like a proactive. Um, approach such that we're like, you know, we're aware of what's coming and uh, have taken precautions so that we use new, this new technology in a way that is going to lead to the bet, like good outcomes and avoid bad outcomes. Then the rate of agreement is just kind of very high indeed. Um, if the, instead you were saying something narrower, which is like, well, AI is going to happen in 20 years and then it's going to be Terminator scenario and we're all gone for sure. That's a much smaller percentage of people. I, so uh, let me rephrase my question. So, uh, which is a totally different question. So I'm kind of cheating, but okay. <laughs> uh, given your, so you are, you're in a somewhat, you're in a very interesting position because you've had the perspective and experience of watching people behave what could be considered very irrational, irrationally. In other words, they would rescue the drowning child, but they won't donate that amount of money for mm-hmm. a similar, nearly guaranteed outcome, right? And mm-hmm. then you have, uh, you have, for instance, this is more from my experience, but I've, I've had a lot of exposure to lawyers and attorneys in the legal world over the last decade or so. And you'll find people who are genuinely, I would say, good people 
who started mm-hmm. out with very altruistic, uh, world improving agendas, and mm-hmm. and yet now they uh, they are say defending child molesters in the Catholic Church, or you know, and their job is to find holes in the depositions of these victims. Or mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds fucking terrible, and it is. Or they're uh, their job is to help big oil companies uh, avoid lawsuits and uh, problematic legislation when there are violations of EPA um, regulations, right? I mean, like, mm-hmm. from my perspective, just horrific, like, evil shit. Mm-hmm. And they're able to rationalize doing it, right? Like, everyone's mm-hmm. everyone is um, entitled to due process, right? That's kind of the catch-all mm-hmm brush aside that that you yeah, hear yeah, yeah. and um but it's like they go from that to a point where this is maybe a separate podcast but i'm all fired up now they they, <laughs> they go from being a hesitant participant in that to mm-hmm. maybe now they're a senior partner and they're like oh there's an oil spill fantastic can you imagine how much work we're gonna have now right and mm-hmm. the but these are people who outside of that compartmentalization Mm-hmm. Act in very good ways. So I guess part of my concern, um, or not, it's not really a concern. My, my question for you is, given how you've observed these quirks of human nature, do you mm-hmm. think people who are at the forefront of AI, who have mm-hmm. the possibility of changing the world in such a fundamental way, not only for other people, but to generate wealth that is almost beyond comprehension for themselves. Mm-hmm. Do you think that drive and greed and arms race, because there are competing teams, right, trying to get to this point in many countries where you have a generalized artificial intelligence, do you think that that competitive drive and uh, desire to win and generate wealth, et cetera, will override the voice in the back of their head saying you need to figure out the safety precautions mm-hmm. and the safety net before we get anywhere close to uh, this technology taking off in the same way that you talked about um, the nuclear arms race, right? Yeah. What's your perspective? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, sadly, I mean, this is just, it's a classic tragedy of the commons where if you're going to have multiple people, um, trying to build the same thing and where whoever gets their first wins basically um, is just, you know, has much more power. Um, And then some people think, oh yeah, we should be doing this like more cautiously. That would, you know, slow progress, but um, we'd be having a greater chance of positive upside and uh, fewer risks. Um, Then they're just going to kind of lose the race. And yeah, sadly, I think it's not, and maybe you can even have that, um, even if everyone's acting altruistically, maybe they disagree slightly on how things should be done, and that's enough for them kind of not to trust each other in the absence of coordination. Mm. And uh, there, again, it's just not even a matter of people getting corrupted, perhaps, as you talk about the people, you know, the lawyers being happy about an oil spill um, being, but just as a matter of economic incentives. Right. Um, then you can get these yeah race dynamics, uh, and you know that was the case. Um, it was exactly the case between um, the U.S. and Russia with um, nuclear weapons. Um, and definitely not saying it's a perfect analogy at all. But um, there, there was the Barak Plan, which uh, was a proposal after the Second World War for 
um, complete um, com- kind of a complete abandonment of all nuclear weapons, and all fissile material would be um, kind of kept a check on by the United Nations. Um, and basically, all parties were in favor of this because it's the best outcome for everyone. Um, but it still wasn't able to happen because, just because there wasn't sufficient trust between um, the two countries. And yep, then we get this um, incentive, this kind of arms race. Uh, and that's, I think, why we kind of want, you know, and, you know, not just for AI, other sorts of, uh, you know, risky technologies as well, you know, the ability to develop pathogens, ability to do geoengineering. Um, we're on the frontier of developing many different technologies that have very large potential upsides and very large potential costs. Um, and in each case, we want to have, you know, coordinated um, approach so that we can ensure that we don't get those sort of race dynamics, I think. Mm. What existential threat to mankind worries you the most or is most underrated? Those are two different questions, but I'll, I'll make it two questions anyway. Uh, yeah, so I guess... Um, uh, Until recently, I would have said, actually, yeah, okay, I have an answer for most underrated. Um, for, you know, what is me the most? So, yeah, development of new pathogens. So once we start being able to build viruses and bacteria, um, then uh, it will become very easy to potentially build pathogens that could kill billions of people or um, the entire world uh, or just almost everyone in the world. Um, you know, that's very worrying, as is AI. Those are kind of, uh, those are the two big ones, I think. Um, in terms of most underrated, I think are the ones we don't even know about. Um, so, <laughs> right. Uh, we, you know, predicting future technology is extremely difficult to do. Um, everyone basically agrees with this. And many of the developments that have happened over the last 50, 100 years would have been completely unpredictable 50 or 100 years before that. Um, and we should expect, again, there's going to be developments that happen over the next 50 or 100 years that um, you know, no one's even thought of at the moment. Uh, and so I think that means, but you can still make some sorts of um, progress on like, mitigating those risks because there's some things you can do, like greater political coordination across the world is just going to be really good across a very wide range of scenarios. Um, you know, having research institutes working on really the frontiers of um, technological development, doing horizon scanning to try and identify sort of risks like this. Um, those are some of the things that uh, we could be doing to try and mitigate these unknown unknowns. Um, but that's exactly the sort of thing we're going to be biased against because it's like, you're spending money doing something that you don't even know what it's going to help with. Um, it's like quite an abstract kind of sell. So uh, I suspect the biggest risks are ones we haven't even thought of. Right. Yeah. The black swans. Uh, right. Just a couple more questions. What advice would you give to your, you're only 28. So what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? <laughs> to my 20 year old self. Um, the biggest, I think there's, yeah, let's see the two, I think. So, one is emphasizing, yeah, you have 80,000 working hours in the course of your life. Uh, it's incredibly important to work out how best to spend them and 
what you're doing at the moment, the 20-year-old Will, is just kind of drifting and thinking, um, not spending very much time thinking about this kind of macro optimization. Um, you might be thinking about, you know, how can I do my coursework as well as possible, kind of micro-optimization, but not really thinking about, okay, what are actually my ultimate goals in life and how can I optimize towards them? Um, analogy I use is, uh, you know, if you're going out for dinner, it's going to take you a couple of hours. You might spend five minutes working out where to go for dinner. seems reasonable to spend sort of 5% of your time on how to spend the remaining 95%. If you did that with your career, that would be 4,000 hours um, or two working years. And actually, I think that's pretty legitimate as a thing to do, spending that length of time to work out how should you be spending the rest of your life. Now, do you spend um, that, do you spend, are those two t- contiguous years or are those four years of total time divided? Yeah, I think four years of total time weighted towards the front of your career, I think. Mm-hmm. I think we should be spending a lot of time, and I do this, um, any sort of big decision I make, I spend a very large amount of time uh, thinking about you know, is this the best thing I could be doing? What other things could I be doing instead? Um, are there ways I can change my plans? Um, What's your process uh, for thinking that through? Do you have it like you, do you sit down with a particular pad of paper and go through a particular set of questions? How do you, how do you, th- what is the thinking process for important yeah. big decisions? Um, yeah, so I'll create a Google Doc that um, I share with friends um, or people I particularly respect who will then provide comments and will often be several iterations of this. Um, there's a framework. Uh, so the 80,000 hours, which you know is what 80,000 hours promotes as well, where because I'm thinking about the impact I can ultimately make, you can break that down into kind of three components. Impact you have. So this is for job decisions, but it actually applies quite widely. Um, uh, impact you'll have on the job, where you can think about uh, impact you'll have through your direct labor, through... Um, your ability to advocate for important causes uh, through uh, your donations as well. But then also impact later on in life, where that's uh, skills, credentials, network. Um, Then also, how does this keep my options open? Um, So academia is a great example of this. If you leave academia, it's very hard to come back. Whereas if you go and do something before going into academia or doing a PhD, it's easy to transition back in. Similarly, if you go into a for-profit, then you can transition to non-profits quite easily. Much harder to do it, vice versa. And then also, how much do you learn about yourself in the course of this work? And then the third aspect is personal fit. So, um, you know, how uniquely good am I at doing this compared to other people? Um, and so that's a kind of framework, basically just like a big checklist uh, that I'll use if I'm evaluating different sorts of, um, you know, large-scale pieces of work I could be doing. Can people find um, this framework on the yeah, 80,000 hours website? Yeah, so on the 80,000 hours website, there's, you'll get it as, kind of as soon as you go in. There's, um, uh, what is the website? A, a career, career guide. So just 80,000hours.org. 80,000 is the number, hours.org. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there's a career guide, and actually we've kind of built an interactive tool to help you apply this framework in your own career decisions. It takes about 30 minutes to do. Um, so how to choose that and we'll also kind of recommend you ideas as, uh, as you go through yeah, because sounds... I think we don't often think about this in a very structured way at all that it's no. the most important decision of our lives no I should uh, I think I'm going to do that in the next 24 to 48 hours because it's like I have a habit of just Terrific. at random moments you know I'll have two glasses of wine and ask my girlfriend 
what should I do with my life? What do you think? You know, it's kind of as uh, I, I mean, I'm playing a little bit. I mean, it's not the only way that I approach trying to make these decisions, but I haven't had a structured way of assessing impact mm-hmm. of some of these larger options. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the, how well, does, if you want any career advice as well, we do specialize in that. So uh, <laughs> happy to give you a one-on-one. I appreciate it. I'm not sure if you could consider anything I've done a career, uh, but <laughs> well, that's the thing. Actually, we, that's one of the mistakes we think people make is thinking about careers. Really, you should just be thinking about stages in your life. Yeah. Um, because very few people nowadays just do one thing and then stick at it for the rest of their life. Yeah, um, definitely. You want to be much more flexible than that. Yeah, and that the, the keeping the options open is a really interesting point. Um, we uh, we're going to wrap up in a minute, so we won't get into it this this particular conversation. But spoke a lot with Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, about this mm-hmm. and how he approaches his life. What from what he calls a systems perspective as opposed to a goals perspective, and the systems is always. Uh, in effect, ensuring that even if a given project or stage fails, the skills and relationships and so on that he develops, in addition to the, the, the way in which he sequenced things, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, allows him to be as good off, as well off, or better off afterwards, even if, mm-hmm. e- even if it's a strikeout on some, um, some other levels. Yeah. Um, what... This is the last question. Uh, what ask or request do you have of people listening? I mean, I, I'm going to throw one out there just to, just to, uh, mm-hmm. to, to, to um, because it addresses a pet peeve of mine. If you're a founder who claims to be uh, building something to change the world, and if you're not able or not willing to contribute to any causes right now, then sign the founder's pledge. 2% is nothing. It's 2000 out of a million dollars. It's nothing. It's, it's trivial. So I would just say, if that's your line to ensure you're not lying to yourself and other people, just sign the pledge. I don't see any downside to it that I can perceive. Um, so, so that would be one ask of mine. Um, but what would, what would your ask or request be of the audience and where can they learn more about what you're up to and find, find your work online and you for that matter? Great. So key ask is going to effectivealtruism.com and you can sign up for the Effective Altruism newsletter there. Um, that's also, uh, if you're interested, you can buy my book on there as well, Doing Good Better. That's all about the ideas we've talked about, at least some of the ideas we've talked about, about doing the most good. Uh, beyond that, if you want to do good with charity, see givewell.org for top recommended charities. Just want to do good for your career choice, 80,000hours.org. Again, sign up for the newsletter. And if you're really feeling inspired and you want to um, make an even bigger commitment than that founder's pledge, giving what we can uh, is a pledge of 10% or more. And you can join the community, and uh, it's a really kind of worthwhile and worthwhile thing to do that will make your life more meaningful and also have a huge impact at the same time. But key of those is effectivealtism.com. And Will, how do you pronounce your last name correctly? McCaskill. Okay. And so for people who are going to misspell this, if you wanted to say hi to Will on Twitter, it's at Will McCaskill, M-A-C-A-S-K-I-L-L. 
So kind of like Maka skill, I guess, if you wanted to try to split those up. But Will yeah. McCaskill and then Facebook is uh, facebook.com forward slash WD Crouch. That's a whole separate question that I want to get into. <laughs> uh, and then LinkedIn and so on. And for everybody listening, of course, the links that we discussed, uh, the links that Will just mentioned, those will all be in the show notes, the books, the movies, the uh, wild weekends with Louis Thoreau uh, will all be found at fourhourworkweek.com. Spell it all out, fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. And uh, Will, this has been great fun. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks. And everybody listening, thank you for listening. And until next time, please experiment often. Consider the impact of what you're doing. Don't misspend your 80,000 hours and check it out, 80,000hours.org and everything else that Will mentioned. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening.